Today's episode of Necronomapod is brought to you by Beardology. There are a lot of imitators out there, but there's only one place I buy my beard oil. Beardology Beard Oil nourishes your skin and won't leave you with that greasy feel. With over 17 cents available in their extensive product line, I trust my beard to Beardology. You can find Beardology at beardology.co. Use code NECRO15 to receive 15% off your purchase. Beardology, discover the best way to avoid the shave. Part two of our discussion on JonBenet Ramsey picks up from the 911 call we concluded with last week. We'll discuss the timeline of events that led to the discovery of her body and arguably the most unprofessional police investigation ever conducted. We'll also discuss why so many people were allowed to enter and leave the home at free will, the odd behaviors and actions of JonBenet's parents that day, and why the house was not considered a crime scene until several hours after the body was found. We'll also take a deep dive into the autopsy report, which will probably leave us with more questions than answers. Just when you think the story couldn't get more bizarre, it takes three or four more crazy turns. I'm Mike. I'm Ian. And I'm Dave. If you thought part one of this train wreck was bad, stick around. We are going off the rails tonight. This is Necronomapod. The investigators who first arrived at the crime scene the day after Christmas last year found no signs of forced entry. The body was found in the house eight and a half hours later by the father. The Boulder, Colorado police found themselves caught between a rock and a hard place. The Ramsey family has lots of political connections. The press corps was huge and ravenous. The safest course of action seemed to be just clamming up. The police said nothing except that they were on top of it. Now, five months later, that appears to have been nothing more than posturing. As Tom Foreman reports, no one in Boulder these days appears ready to believe anymore that their police department is on top of this investigation. Ransom note that was left at the Ramsey household. I got a little nervous because the first page looks exactly like my handwriting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe it was you. Maybe I blacked out at 10 years old, <laughs> got to Colorado, and committed a heinous crime. Wouldn't be the strangest thing to happen in this story. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I might be the only set of fingerprints that are not in this household after all the fucking exactly. people that showed up. Right. It's really creepy, though. That note, we posted it this past Friday as the teaser for this week's show. So if you haven't seen it, check it out. It's on our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Necronomapod. But... The the writing is is interesting to look at on that note because it looks like it it slowly and progressively like changes from the first page to the last page. Yeah, they yeah they think some people think it was a left hand or some someone was right handed and did it with their left. It looked like, and we actually I, I had a conversation with some of the patrons today on the Discord that we have patreon.com slash Um It almost looks like they start with their their non dominant hand. And then halfway through, switch to their dominant hand, but are still writing hastily. Well, if you're trying to throw off a handwriting ex, uh, expert on the analysis, yeah, maybe that makes sense, that, right? Or maybe they just they was taking too long. What did we talk about? The 35 minutes we talked about last week. That's what they the average. If you were writing it with your left hand and you were right-handed, so maybe they started with that. They got 20 minutes in and they're like, "Fuck this! I need to get out of here." Possibly yeah, yeah, yeah. just throwing out a scenario. Yeah, it's a strange letter. Lots of strange phrasings in there as well. Yeah, I was look, trying to look back through some of the movie stuff. 
the stray dog thing was for, is from uh, Dirty Harry. Mm. He says something about like, you know, if something happens with the dog, someone dies, whatever. I mean, it's clearly not serious. It's a ruse letter, and it's yeah, preposterous. We're just throwing out scenarios here, or if you're a douchebag, scenario. Does anybody say that? Like People that? do. I do sometimes. No. That's not okay. No, it's terrible. I'm going to say it today. It's terrible. <laughs> Throughout the whole episode, that's going to be your thing. <laughs> All right. You know, you know, we're into a subject when our opening isn't even about something fun. It's just about the actual subject. Yeah, this there's been, nothing fun even ha- going on that I talk to talk about. Really? No, well, I mean, you can't have a whole lot of fun with this. Uh, yeah. No. With this, these so notes. strange though. It really is. I think that's, I'm learning that that's kind of, I think, what I'm most into when all of these shows we cover are the ones that give you, that leave you with more questions and answers, like the Dyatlov Pass and the Chris Benoit one and and now this episode. So like those unexplainable scenarios where you can't really... <laughs> exactly. Those unexplainable scenarios. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, that's as bad as saying instead of amateur, amateur. I don't think so. No, it's terrible. They're no, both awful. The They're both awful. Or amateur, if you say it quickly, amateur. It's terrible. I don't think people say that. People do. I've heard it. Who, I'm just making who this up. are these people that say such I'm, a thing? I'm not just making up these weird scenarios. <laughs> so, all right. Well, we got a lot to jump into, so we might as well just get into it. Yeah. Ian, it, before we start, mm-hmm. is this the most frustrated you've ever been putting an outline together? And I mean that in the sense of just the actual what you're the, the the content the meat of this it's just it's yeah it's really difficult to uh to get a straight answer on anything because there's so many different experts that have put their two cents in this stuff and then you start looking at shit that people post online their theories and it just gets so it's not 90 percent of the online theories are absolute mm. nonsense you know and even when you try to formulate sort of an idea in the back of your head as to what happened, then it, you know, like, what about this? But what about this? And nothing ever fits. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Nothing in this makes any sense. Right. And, and like you could, we're going to talk about the pineapple issue at the end. I, I was sitting there last night reading about the pineapple forever, like all these. The pizza, you mean? Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, I'm, I'm sitting there reading about it forever and I'm like, I'm, we could do a full episode on the fucking pineapple right. issue in itself. So that'll make more sense at the end of the show. I think. <laughs> yeah, Some yeah, exactly. We could do a whole episode on the pineapple pizza thing too. Big controversy. That fired more people up than anything else we've ever said on this show. That's surprising. And exposed that a lot of our listeners don't have much culinary taste as far as I'm concerned. No, Cause they like fucking fruit on their pizza. <laughs> it's an abomination. But alas, In the eyes of the Lord. <laughs> we've upset enough of them, so we're not going to go down that tangent. All right, fun's over. <laughs> Serious time. So where we left off, we left off with the ransom note being found. We kind of went over, we went over all that stuff in the last episode. Then we hit the 911 call. And we listened to it a lot of times to see what people thought they heard there at the end. Over and over again. I didn't hear anything. You did not hear anything the entire... I mean... I hear sounds like nothing I, I can make out. I thought I could hear for sure the mom saying, help me, Jesus. Mm. The other part, I don't know how much of it was just kind of my brain was led to believe I was hearing things because of what we discussed. Well, because he told you beforehand what right. people thought they heard. Nothing yeah. Nothing was very concrete. I mean, you, yeah. you can't get anything concrete from it. Yeah, I, I don't think, I, I don't know if I said it on the last episode or not, but I don't think any anybody that says that they can hear three distinct voices on that is full of shit. Yeah. 
I agree for that. Yeah. yeah. Maybe two. Maybe. Po- yeah. If po- you think you possibly. hear the dad in the background. Right. John. So yeah, let's let's jump into right after the nine one one call. After the call, the Ramseys called Fleet and Priscilla White, and then they called John and Barbara Fernie. There's some debate on who was called first, but we know that the calls were made before 5.59 a.m. At 5.59 a.m., Boulder Police Officer Rick French arrives on the scene in a Boulder Police Department marked car. It's not disputed that Officer French was the first law enforcement officer to arrive at the Ramsey's house. Most reports have him arriving at 5.59 a.m. based around him arriving seven minutes after the 911 call which the 911 call was logged at 5.52 a.m. Some reports have French arriving earlier, but that would mean that the 911 call was logged at the wrong time. So I guess my first thought is the ransom note said do not contact the police, so here they're rolling up in a marked marked car at you know five minutes later. Yeah, that's not the, great. Yeah, first missed up. Yeah, right off the bat. Yeah. Because missed up in what sense? Like in following the ransom note, you mean? Yeah. It says do not... Contact the right, police. Right, right. I understand. Well, in all fairness, they thinking, hadn't read the whole note yet, but still. And I feel like your first reaction is to call the re- police, like Let's in that fu- situation. But the police shouldn't roll up to the house that's probably being watched by the ransom note writer in a marked but they police don't, car. But they don't know what the ransom note says, the but, police. But, I mean, most ransom notes say don't contact police. Yeah. That but, should be standard procedure. Patsy said it right off the bat that there's a ransom note. But then do you think that... The police departments take the extra time then to wait, hold off that that marked car and send an unmarked car in these situations. Is that typical? I don't know. It seemed to make sense. I mean, it doesn't seem like it would be that hard to send a unmarked car, right? I mean, I, I, mean, I, I guess so. probably not. You would hope not. Okay. I mean, that makes sense. It's just not great. It's not smart right off the bat. Because right now in You're the story, attention. right? Because right now in the story, we're still a bit, we're still thinking that she's been kidnapped. Yeah, we're basically and they're probably the, watching the house. Right. You mean in this scenario, yeah. she's been kidnapped. <laughs> I'm just gonna See, beat, it sounds better, I'm gonna right? Beat you to it, Dave, and just use it myself, and then that was my goal all along. So, <laughs> <laughs> at approximately 6 a.m., Officer French read the ransom letter and did a quick search of the house. Other reports claim French did the house search first and then read the ransom letter. Isn't there a police report? How can we? What does other reports mean? There should be one report. Yeah, you would think. <laughs> yeah. French himself said that after being greeted by Patsy, when he got there, John Ramsey led him to the ransom note. And sometime after 6 a.m., Officer French searched the basement. So a that, very thorough report. After sometime after 6 a.m., <laughs> yeah. I searched the basement. French checked the garage and lower levels of the house looking for places where a kidnapper might have carried off John Bonet, and he found none. The house was messy, but he saw no signs of a struggle. During the search, French failed to search what Ramsey, what the Ramseys and later everyone else would refer to as the wine cellar room from police reports and French's search of the basement. So he did not go into every room down there, specifically the wine cellar mm. room. Doesn't seem to make much sense. Well... Go ahead. Well, according to French and police reports, he saw this door during his initial search, and it was locked from the outside with a wooden latch. And he's called into question for it, but what he determines is that it would be physically impossible for someone to close that door behind them and secure the latch once in the room because it's on the opposite side of the door. So he's like, no one left through this. 
Yeah, I, I get that part of it, but still. It's it's probably not best protocol to just skip rooms. Yeah. But I understand in his haste. I understand it's a mistake, but I understand yeah. it, I guess. I mean, in hindsight, you, he could have just flipped the the lock and popped the door open in 2 seconds, you know, but Yeah. While all of this is going on, Sergeant Reichenbach arrives and conducts a search of the home. At 6.03 a.m., friends Fleet and Priscilla White arrive at the Ramsey house. According to Fleet's later testimony, he alone searched the basement. Fleet White said that he went downstairs to look for John Bonet, and the lights were already on in the basement. Fleet White does not, at this point, if you believe his testimony, he does not know that there's a ransom note. According to him, he just thinks she's missing. And according to him, he had a scare before where he thought his daughter was missing and found her hiding somewhere in the house. So that was, according to his testimony, that's his first thing is mm. okay. he's so that- going to start looking through the house. Who called him? Do we know John or Patsy? From what I saw, it just said the Ramses. So when they call, what are they saying? Come over, John Benet's missing? I guess. Because according to his testimony, he did not know that there was a ransom note involved. That's also, they arrived within four minutes. They must have lived in the that's neighborhood. That's really right? quick. Because you're probably being woken up by this call. To get up, get in a car, or run in four minutes? I could beat your house in four minutes if you called me. But, yeah, but if I'm waking you up and I'm saying someone's missing, get here, yeah. that's that's really quick. Yeah, I suppose. I'm just saying if you frantically call yeah. me in the 6 a.m., I can beat your but house in But if I also said minutes. the police are coming, like, I don't, I don't <clears throat> know. I, okay, I guess. That's just quick. That's really quick. Yeah, it is quick. Fleet White then searched the train room or what he would call the playroom. He testified that the window in the basement playroom or, or train room was broken and under the broken window was a suitcase along with a broken piece of glass. He does not remember whether the window was open or closed, just the fact that it was broken. Fleet White also opened the door to the wine cellar room but could not see anything because it was dark and there were no windows in that room. He also could not find the light switch because it was in an odd spot, and from his point of view, there was no sign of John Bonet, so he moved on. Uh, okay, so two people passed the wine cellar. I mean, he opened that it. That does seem that seems plausible. Like if you look looking back, hindsight, the the cop and and Fleet should have probably been more thorough. But you're opening up a room; it's dark. You can't find the light switch. You probably do a quick once over. Your eyes aren't adjusted yet, so you think you see nothing, but really your eyes aren't adjusted, and then you move on. Again, it's a panic situation. Yeah, I I, I see your point. I'm just saying it's plausible. But if it you're looking be- for a missing kid in the basement, I think you Agre- should probably clear every space. I agree. But you're also, you know, if you're fleet, and this has happened to you allegedly, maybe you're thinking you open that door, you're going to hear your daughter giggling or hiding or something. He might not necessarily be thinking he's looking for a body. Yeah, I mean, in his mind right now, that's the last thing I would, you know, he wouldn't even be thinking that sure. she was dead or anything. That's a good like that. point. At 6.10 a.m., Boulder Police Department officer Carl Veach responds to the scene, and Boulder Police Department has still failed to lock down this as a crime scene, allowing the Ramses and their friends to just walk freely through the house. This is just crazy. So, I mean, they all should have been segregated into one spot and told not to move, I would assume. Would be Probably standard even procedure. outside the home, even. Like, just nobody in the house. Well, just cordoned off, at least. At the very least, yes. Yeah, they should have all been like, okay, you're going to stay in the kitchen yeah, or something, and we need to figure this out. Because mm-hmm. regardless, we don't know it's a murder, but regardless, if she's kidnapped, 
she was taken somewhere. So there's going to be some forensics somewhere in that house. Sure. Yeah. And now you got people opening and closing doors, touching doorknobs, maybe probably opening and closing windows, right? Putting footprints all through the house. It's that's unbelievable. Yeah. John Ramsey told the police that after he was aware that something was wrong, that he did check the first floor doors and found them all to be locked. He says the Ramseys, like we talked about in part one, had an alarm system, but it was turned off. They also had a dog, but it was staying at a friend's house that night, so it was not there during the incident. Some people bring that into question, but they were planning to go out of town the next day. They were getting that flight. Yeah, that makes sense. The dog's gone. There's nothing. I don't see anything odd with that. Mm -mm. Not at all. John said he saw no signs of forced entry, and both John and Patsy say they heard nothing throughout the night. Police officers see marks on the kitchen door that led to the outside, which they questioned, but John Ramsey didn't know if they were old or new because he had a habit of forgetting his keys and just breaking stuff to get into his own house and not fixing it. Like he would just bust a window and... It's weird. <laughs> it's a very strange habit. One of those That's, fake yeah. rock key holders you can put in the garden or something, dude. Yeah, come on, pal. Or like, yeah, just busting, like you know, breaking the lock but, on the back of your kitchen, like door. Is that, right. Was that proven that he does that, or is that just something he said afterwards, after the fact? As far as I could see, that was a verifiable habit of his because there was stuff <laughs> broken all over the house that he would just bust shit to get it back Jeez. in this house and stuff. Four broken windows in the back. Oh, yeah, that was me. Just trying to get in. We'll get later to a, a basement window that he's like, yeah, I broke that. I just forgot to fix it. Hmm. It's a very strange I feel so thing. vulnerable. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a strange habit to get into. At 6.45 a.m., John Ramsey called their pilot, Michael Archuleta, and left a voice message for him. A few minutes later, the pilot called back, and according to him, all that was said was something was wrong and the Ramseys would not be making the flight. At 6.45 a.m., Officer Sue Barklow arrived at the Ramseys' house, and about the same time, a victim's advocates group, who was called in by the police, arrive at the Ramsey house. The police have still not locked down the house as a crime scene, and they have now called more people into this house. And the victim's advocates group brought bagels and coffee for everyone. Have you ever heard of such a thing like this? No. Like, I can see like a post-crime later on advocates group, but they show up to an active crime scene? Right. I've never heard of such a thing. No, that's, that's mm-hmm. really odd. Don't get me wrong. I like the idea of it is okay. Yeah. But... Well, yeah, after to an the active, fact. to an active, like maybe take the family to a location where they're going to be supported Something. and have not like, just invite in a bunch of strangers into an active crime right. scene. Yeah. Is this how CEOs and rich people get treated by the police when they come over? I do think so. <laughs> I, like, I don't know. Some of this I do think is um, is different treatment based on their income uh, and their status in I life. I think there's going to be a lot of that as we get through this well, story. I don't disagree with that. At 6.50 a.m., Officer Weiss and Officer Barklow were photographing and fingerprinting areas of the house. Officer Veach had collected the ransom note, and at 7 a.m., Burke Ramsey was woken up and dressed. There are two different accounts of how this went down, but both are, are pretty similar. One account states that John Ramsey, Fleet White, and John Fernie woke up Burke and got him dressed. The other story says it was just John Ramsey and Fleet White. What's the significance of that? It's just the different stories involved here. There might not be any significance in it. It's just reported two different ways. Every step of the way. Yeah. Every aspect. If one of your kids was kidnapped, wouldn't you want the other one right next to you? I mean, at all times during this I was thinking unfolding the same thing. scenario. Yeah, I thought that was very uh, odd. 
And I, I find they, it. They, we did say in part one that they went and checked on Burke, didn't they? They went up and yes. saw that he was in the room and then they went and confirmed, allegedly confirmed. We didn't, we didn't know if the, if, if Patsy saw she was missing first and then went downstairs or then ran back upstairs and saw she was missing. Right. But we did say she did go check on Burke. Yes. Burke was checked on according to them. Like, I don't think you would leave that kid's side, right? I agree. You wouldn't let him out of your sight. No, because this all went down. They found the note at 5.45 a.m. Now we're at 7, and they're just waking him up. I also find it hard to believe that this kid was still sleeping with all these police officers and people mm. in the house. So if it's I mean, a big enough house, though, he might not even know what's going on. It's a big fucking I mean, house. It's a mansion. Yeah. You might just not know. Maybe. Maybe he had a TV on in the room or something. I guess we would have might we might well we might have heard of that or we might just not have known because they yeah just, I mean you could make I guess you could make the argument that he couldn't have heard it because the house is so big and they weren't maybe not by his room at the time I, I think that know. makes sense yeah but just to but leave you, him up there by himself for over an I hour I agree with that this. like you would I you'd want to just keep an eye on him because why would you not suspect they're not gonna they're gonna you know quote come take your other kid you know or right why and you have they, no idea what's right. going on at this you don't point. know so. They yeah, could still I be agree. in the house, That's right? Very scary. Like, yeah. Who knows? Plus, there's fucking broken windows all over the house because John doesn't know how to get in. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. At 7.13 a.m., Reverend Roland Hoverstock from St. John's Episcopal Church arrives at the Ramsey's home. So we got another person, another outside person just rolling in here. After I'm assuming the family called him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I don't understand why they are calling all these people over. It doesn't make sense or why the police aren't like, hey, you know what? Stop. Don't call anybody else into this house. Yeah. Or rich people treatment. After the reverend arrives, Burke Ramsey was taken by Fleet White and John Fernie to pick up the Fernie children, presumably at the Fernie home, and then taken to the White's home. So the other really strange thing, in my opinion, is why, if you think your other your child, one of your children has been kidnapped, why are you letting him leave or why and why is the police letting him leave the house? Exactly. None of this makes sense. He's by your side yeah. nonstop. That's it. Yeah. Is that special treatment by the police or is that just incompetence by the people investigating? They're just kind of they don't have a control over the situation right now. It doesn't seem like they have any control over it. And that's what I'm leaning towards too. Like yeah. I don't necessarily think I rate that as special treatment. I think it's that they're just flustered and well, but incompetence leads to losing control of the situation. Sure, yeah. we're in, sure. Another interesting fact: I when I was I was reading something, and it said that the one person who had been trained in you know like hostage situations in the police department was on vacation that day. Yeah, because it's Christmas. Yeah, so that's it. One person was trained. <laughs> well, do they did they have a lot of hostage situations in Boulder, Colorado, at that point? You would think you'd have more than one. No, but you need a backup because it or you would possible I mean, to happen. Do you not have someone like another? town or city to call in it's like Something. hey hey we're gonna go ahead and need you today yeah i feel like everybody should have at least somebody on call for that situation yeah right you would assume yeah it's not like it's a small town it's uh you would think can't afford something like that you know i don't know if you guys know this i'm the backup hostage negotiator for our city <laughs> oh are you yeah <laughs> luckily they haven't needed me but if they did Come out here right now or shoot your ass. <laughs> Matt, with your hands up, boy. <laughs> I don't play, bitch. <laughs> That's you de-escalating the situation. Yeah, well, I'm keeping everyone calm. You motherfucker. <laughs> but I'm keeping it very, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm straight ahead about it. I'm gonna, I'm a, 
I'm going to be very honest with you and, you know, come out of the house. We're going to shoot your ass. (laughs) That's how I play that game. (laughs) You got five seconds before we blow up the trailer with you and all the hostages in it. Bitch. (laughs) So while Burke is being woken up and, and dressed, police want to ask him if he heard anything. According to most accounts, John Ramsey told the officers that Burke was sleeping the entire night and he saw and heard nothing. So John kind of stepped in and wouldn't let Burke talk. Yeah, and I don't see anything wrong with that. I don't either, but that doesn't help the cause of a cover-up situation. I guess if they're like, hey, did you hear anything? Like, I feel like I wouldn't protect a kid from answering that question. I'm trying to think about this scenario. You, I feel like I would be asking to... would I would be asking the same thing. Did you hear anything? Do you anything you can give us? If I was the you know the parent, I guess if you knew he was sleeping the whole time, are you just trying to help the investigation? Telling the police he doesn't you know he didn't hear anything. He was asleep the whole time. But you he might have been sleeping. But maybe he said, "Oh, I did wake up. I thought I heard something fall." Yeah. But then I you know I just rolled over and went back to sleep. I would want to know if the kid heard anything. I guess you would be speaking to him in conjunction with the police, not right. trying to block the police. I guess. Yeah. 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 I mean, I don't, I would not fault him for protecting his kid, right? but it, it also doesn't help the case for a possible cover up. I mean, I could see him immediately knowing the legal situation of this. He's a court, he is a CEO of a weapons defense mm-hmm. software company mm-hmm. and he could, he would have to, you would have to know immediately that they're, you're going to be a suspect in something. So he's like, no, nah, we're, even if he has nothing to do with it, I could see that. Yeah, I, being like, it's no, plausible. you're not talking to anybody right now. I, I, I don't disagree. Which I don't see anything wrong with that. Yeah, I, I, I don't either. I guess you're trying to weigh, you know. But at the same time, how much are you thinking that over the fact that your daughter is missing? And I, I don't know. I'm not in that situation. It's hard but, to put yourself. I mean, you think you know how you're going to react in a situation like that, but you probably don't. I guess my thought is, if I'm innocent, I'm not even thinking about what I'm going to have to go through legally. I'm thinking about how the fuck do I get my kid back and I'll do whatever it takes and I'll cooperate with whoever to help make the situation as smooth as possible. That's the problem though. When you're dealing with incompetent cops like that, you, you saying the wrong thing could get you I understand. in I just a lot don't, of trouble down. So, I mean, it's not, I just don't think that would be where my mind is. And it's hard to say, cause you don't yeah. know. I just don't think I would be thinking about what the repercussions of I'm going to be because my mind in my mind, I'd be like, well, I'm completely innocent. I just need to find my kid. And I mean, there's a whole series on Netflix about people that describe exactly what you're saying and the cops twisted on them and they're yep. in jail for something they didn't do. Mm. I, Again, I, I'm not, I'm not faulting him. I'm not yeah, in that yeah, situation. No. I'd protect my kid as much as I could too. And maybe that's what he was doing. Yep. I mean, the police, are a requirement in society, but they also fuck up just like everybody else does. And sometimes they push for, to get their, uh, their narrative to fit well, and close a case. I think our three part series here is a case study in that <laughs> you know, very much. So at an unknown time, John Ramsey apparently searched the basement and did this alone. According to some stories, he testified that he found the broken window partially open and under the broken window, he also saw the same suitcase that was seen earlier by Fleet White. John Ramsey testified that the suitcase belonged to his family but was normally stored in a different place. John Ramsey then returned upstairs. So he didn't go to the wine cellar either. At this point, we're at 7.30 a.m. 
and the police have done the first smart thing you would do in a ransom situation. They stopped all radio communication and switched to cell phones, and they also put a trap and trace on the Ramsey's phone lines in case the kidnapper called. After all these squad cars have pulled up and <laughs> yeah. sirens blaring. An hour victim, and a half later. Victims yeah. advocates groups coming in. The bagel seeds all over the place. <laughs> Probably spilling coffee everywhere yeah, and shit. Right. <laughs> but, but we don't want to draw attention, so radio's off. They're play out front with bullhorns. <laughs> it's actually not funny. It's it's really sad, but you got to put that out of your mind. Yeah. Around this time, they also collect the $118,000 ransom. And like we said in part one, John Ramsey basically pulled this out of his pocket. This was his holiday bonus, wasn't it? Wasn't it 118? And It was basically rounded up to the cents. Did he have cash in the safe? As far as I know, he just, it just says that he got the money, that the money was put together. Mm. I mean, it's having $100,000 in $100 bills on hand and, you know presumably in your safe at home i don't know is that ordinary i i'm not a rich person i don't know <laughs> i would like to say yes of course it's very ordinary we do it all the time i that does seem odd it would seem odd Seems to like have a lot that amount. yeah or if you're a defense contractor industry is it possible that you might have to leave the country quickly i don't yeah, know you never yeah. know you have that yeah for safety or whatever yeah i mean i, I i'm not sure and it does uh, and there's nothing that i could find anywhere that said like what specifically bills it was or you know what i mean because the ransom note said a hundred thousand and hundreds and eighteen thousand and twenties i believe that's a lot of twenty dollar bills sure is but not for someone like me yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah but i'm an associate uh hostage negotiator for oh yeah for the Medi- medina county so <laughs> <laughs> yeah. raking in all kinds of dough I'm a volunteer hostage negotiator. <laughs> I'm like Dwight Schrute over here. I just volunteer for that position. They don't call. They don't call me. What is he, a volunteer sheriff's deputy? Yeah. yeah. And then the firefighter thing, too, I believe. <laughs> That's when he's looking up everyone's medical records. <laughs> there are a ton of yeast infections. <laughs> Any hoodles. At 7.33 a.m., a canine unit is put on standby. And this is weird because they never use the canine unit. They just have it there on standby. You would think if you had the resources to allow you to have a canine unit, you would bring in at least one dog and let it sniff around. To pick up her scent. Right, and see where the point of exit was. And they did not. If they would have brought, the, well, because we, I mean, we know what happens. She is found dead later on. If they would have let that dog sniff something in her bedroom, it would have let her led them right to that wine cellar door. And this would we wouldn't even have to talk about any of this other part, but, any of this other I, timeline stuff. Yeah, and I guess that makes sense because you're looking for like an exit from the home. Because again, they're not thinking the body's in the house or she's in the house. Right, they're this, thinking she's gone. Yeah, this is a kidnapping right now. But like you said, use the dog and find out what exit. They went out of whether it be that basement window or the front door or whatever. Of it course, is. or if, if it's have the it neighbor, there, she could be next door. They, right? Yeah, you have the dog there. It's, Why would you it's not there. use it? Why would you not use any resource you could? Right. The dog is at around that crime scene. So just sitting on standby. Did they give a reason as to why they didn't, or they just didn't feel it was necessary? I mean, I couldn't find any explanation. Because we're not talking about like mm. preferential treatment, I guess, at this point, right? Like, why would you just not use a resource that you had? It's just incompetence. Seems yeah. to be incompetence. At 8 a.m., neighbor Scott Gibbons got up and saw the basement door to the Ramseys was wide open. 
There's some debate on whether this door being open is relevant or not because a police officer or even John Ramsey could have left the door open when going through the basement. I feel like at this point, you're two hours later. People yeah. have been coming and going. Right. Is Scott Gibson also the one who saw the light on at midnight in the kitchen? Or was that someone else from our first? He is not. I'm pretty confident in that. Perhaps mm. someone in the kitchen eating some pineapple at midnight. <laughs> <laughs> We're teasing this pineapple <laughs> up, and then we're going to get there, and people are like, what the fuck? Yeah, no, he he is not. He's not the same neighbor? No. At 8.10 a.m., Detective Patterson and Detective Linda Arndt arrived at the Ramsey home. Officer Rick French gave them an updated briefing. Detective Arndt prepped John Ramsey regarding the ransom call on how he should handle the call when it comes in. First to keep talking or keep the caller talking long enough to trace the call and maybe get the most important thing is to demand to talk to John Bonet, make sure she's alive. Proof of life, if you will, in the industry term. Yeah, right. <laughs> yes, I know. I'm a hostage negotiator. <laughs> While this is going on, the victim advocates group starts cleaning the kitchen, which is just completely outrageous that they weren't stopped. <laughs> that someone's like, you can't start wiping down counters. <laughs> like, What are you doing? That just defies all sen- any sense of logic. Yeah, you would think all. also if you're a victim advocates group, you're probably being allegedly called into a lot of these situations, you would know better, right? You would think. Then to start wiping down crime scenes. I mean, I guess it's not a crime scene technically at this point. But still. You you would, yeah. But it is a crime scene. Maybe they didn't make the official declaration. Sure. No, I understand. Yeah. Has anyone from this advocates group ever been interviewed like later on maybe and then asked like, what the fuck are you doing? That's interesting. That's your next interview. I wonder what that, what, what, Yeah. How did no one ever talk to them? Did they ever release a statement? Like they were very close to this. And what kind of bagels did they bring? No one. Because <laughs> I like an everything bagel myself. The little salmon cream cheese, smoked salmon cream I'll cheese. Do I'll do that. I've All never right. had that before. No, that's the best. I like that's the veggie All right. cream cheese. Also delicious. I just think it's odd that if they were this close to the investigation, they're seeing it with their own eyes. They were never brought in to for questioning or to testify or nobody looked to this group to say, hey, did you see anything on that day? That's that's weird. And this is not the Stone Ages either of criminal investigation. This is 1996. Mm-hmm. This is a couple years after O.J. Simpson's trial was over. They used DNA in O.J.'s trial. It was the first mainstream trial with DNA, but the science is still out there. Evidence collecting is not like right. primitive like <laughs> yeah. the 70s right. at this point. Like many of the cases we've discussed. Right. So this is just completely unreal that that this would not be stopped well but even fingerprinting's been around for a hundred years you still don't let people wipe <laughs> down, a crime down a scene. well dave they had to get the cream cheese off the counter <laughs> and, and that's the thing is this rich people treatment is this like the this is an extremely wealthy man mm-hmm. but when you say rich people treatment what do you mean in this sense? Like, does he know the mayor or the police intimidated, tiptoeing around, you know, what they can and can't do as they're dealing with him? Right. That sort of thing. So not necessarily protecting him because he was involved in something. No, no, no. Just no. trying to be very careful not to upset him. Protecting himself. Right. I still don't understand how wiping down counter- counters, though, would upset him. Like, that's a point where you can step in as a police officer and say, hey, don't do that. Well, yeah. I'm, I mean, this is all on the fault of the police. Right. I mean, completely that's, that's partial incompetence i mean there's a like couple there's a lot of things going on and there's here. a few things where you can say maybe some treatment yeah. like wiping down counters if i'm a cop 
I don't care who you are. I'm going to tell that person, hey, stop wiping down that counter. Right. I'm th- I'm talking the victim advocates group. Like maybe they did spill some shit and they're like, oh, I don't want to piss off anybody. So I'm going to wipe that up. Like but maybe that, the victim advocate group. Say that again. I like the victim, av- the victim's advocate. Like maybe someone from that, a member of that group spilled something. And they were like, oh, I don't Do want to piss anybody off. Do you mean physically spilled something or like spilled something knowledge-wise? No, sp- like physically oh, knocked a coffee. Oh, I'm thinking you mean or- knowledge-wise, like spilled something <laughs> like, hey, I just saw so-and-so cleaning uh, up a bloody rag. Oh, no. And the cops are like, well, we're, we're you know, you're nobody, so we're no, going to wipe. No. Okay, I just wanted to be clear. Like they knocked the coffee over something or something. I- yeah, okay. That makes sense. But then that's on the fault of the police. They need to say, hey, stop well, You should have somebody doing. there watching them. Like, if I- <laughs> you should have a cop in every fucking room of this house. Just kind of want monitor, especially if you're having all these people in there. Well, everyone should be in one room, right? Absolutely. Well, yeah. First of all, they shouldn't be all over. If you're going to allow them all over, you should probably have cops monitoring everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At eight thirty-six a.m., John Andrew and Melinda Ramsey boarded a Delta flight in Minneapolis to head back to the Ramsey home. So those are his adult kids from his first marriage, right? You know, we talked about the 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 house diagram. Those two also had rooms assigned. Um, in the second floor of the house when they came to visit, it just, it had their rooms listed. So they must've had permanent rooms in the house. Okay. On that second floor. So the, the yeah. John Bonet and Burke were at the ends and then those two were in the middle ish. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. At nine twenty-seven AM detectives contacted Gary Merriman for a list of employees at access graphics. So they're starting to get the ball rolling as far as potential suspects. Maybe uh, pageant judges as well should be on the list <laughs> yeah. of people they're getting names from. Whoever those guys are with the mag, that order in that magazine. <laughs> <laughs> right. At 10 a.m., no one, including the Ramses, mentions that the suspected kidnappers failed to call during the time they said, which was 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. This is the mo- this is probably the most mind-boggling aspect of this case so far that we've covered. Because as a parent, you would be sitting by that phone, waiting. You Staring John, at it. John Ramsey was prepped specifically on how to handle this phone call. And it comes and goes, and no one says a word. The police don't say anything. The Ramseys don't say anything. And he's not even sitting by the phone. He's Walk- doing his own thing, searching the house or whatever he might be doing. And with the implication being he knows no calls coming, right? <laughs> that would be the... I- suspicion here i would be sitting by the phone i think again i don't know what i would do in that situation but you would imagine if that was your only hold on hope is that you got your money and you're waiting for that call plus your thought is they're going to trace it or maybe i'll get to hear my daughter yeah i'd be sitting there waiting for that call Uh, my my thought and i don't i feel like i don't even need to put myself or be like I don't know what I would do in this situation. If I was prepped for a phone call specifically by the police and how to talk to a kidnapper between this window of time, my mind would be not, I'm thinking on nothing but how I'm going to handle talking to this person. Yeah. And when that didn't happen, I'd be like, hey, what, what do we do now? What do we do? Yeah. Because the phone call didn't come. And everyone just went about their what they were doing like nothing even happened. That or really are we just weird. so accustomed to movie, you know, movie scene ransoms that you just think that that's how it would play out? But wouldn't you say something if you, you're John? You Ram- think, yeah. If you were John Ramsey, wouldn't you be like, "Hey, the phone call never came." Everyone in the house should be focused on that that moment that phone rings. Right. 
I agree. Because that's the only lead at that point. No one's thinking that, she's the in the house somewhere. That's the only thing you have to that's hold it. on to is that call. I'd be, I agree. In my biggest thing. If only there was thing. a hostage negotiator that was available <laughs> on this one day when they needed someone to kind of take charge and tell people what to do. It just sounds like no one's in charge. No, no one knows what to do. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, it's, it just makes, it makes absolutely zero sense. Why? Right. Do we think, how prepared were the police for this kind of situation? And I know we don't necessarily have the answer for that, but in Boulder, Colorado, how often are they dealing with a situation like this? Maybe they were also ill-prepared, just they didn't know what to do. So they're they're kind of running around investigating, but not really knowing what to investigate. I think that plays a, somewhat of a part in it, but they're missing really basic uh, police tactics. I, I don't disagree with that. I'm just also, yeah. you know, for a situation like this, where there might be a hostage, maybe they weren't even prepared for that to know, like, you know, but, what they should be doing, like the unmarked police car coming or something like that. I'm sure they weren't prepared at all. But I mean, we're talking, what, four hours later? I mean, they could have been on the phone to the FBI and asking for guidance yeah. at this point. And that's something that will get brought up in part three with who John Ramsey works for and why this wasn't uh, locked down, you know, uh, a lot stricter right off the bat. Mm. There's a lot so. going on here. At approximately 10.30 a.m., Detective Linda Art and Fred Patterson finally seal off John Benet's bedroom. So, oh, now they so, do. So we've done it. At 10.30, they sealed the, off her bedroom. And how many people have just been a walking portion, in a and out of A portion of the house. Yeah. Not even the whole house. We're going to seal off just this room. No, the whole house is still free-for-all, but yeah. her, her room has been sealed okay. off. Okay, I guess it's a start. Yeah, we're getting there. That was where she was last seen, so okay. Yeah. Makes sense. Shortly after 10.30 a.m., all police officers besides Linda Arndt and the victim advocates leave the Ramsey house. So that means we now have Detective Linda Arndt at the home. One detective, one single person responsible for Patsy Ramsey, John Ramsey, the Whites, the Fernies, and the Reverend. Why did this happen? That's so weird. No idea. They just left. Everybody left except for her. To go do more work? Like for this or just to go back patrolling the streets. I don't know. That's so weird. But they're detectives. They weren't, you know. Yeah. They weren't all street cops. Right. I guess so. Yeah. It's, I mean, I feel like, I mean, we'll see in a little bit here. Linda Arndt does some really questionable things, but I mean, this is completely throwing her under the bus saying, oh yeah, you know what? You got this. We'll let you go. Kidnappers were supposed to call 30 minutes ago. They could be running behind. We don't know. But guess what? You're going to stay here and you're going to be responsible for like seven people in a in a crime scene. See ya. Not even a crime scene. Well, yeah. Technically. Technically. <laughs> it's unimaginable. Yeah. You, there's nothing you can even say about it, really. I mean, it's just it's just nonsense. I keep saying it defies logic, but it just. It's hard. Logic. You can only say it so many times yeah, in one exactly. day. <laughs> it's hard to believe it even happened. Yeah. Between 10:40 a.m. and 12 p.m., John Ramsey is unaccounted for. Linda aren't the only officer on the scene does not know where John Ramsey is during this time frame. She knows where everybody else is, but she does not know where John Ramsey is. He disappears during this time frame. Just keeps getting stranger. Yep. When she finally accounts for him around noon, she says that John was sitting by himself reading some type of letter or something. She makes the assumption that he went to let that he left to go get the mail for an hour and 20 minutes. <laughs> well, that's what I'd be worried about getting the mail. Yeah. Right. 
Well, that's what people call into question with that. They're, when she said that back in, you know, back when this was all being first reported on, everyone's like, what the fuck? Why are you checking your mail? Well, you want to see if you got some good credit card, uh, 0% <laughs> offers than the mail that day. I would more be questioning her, like, why the fuck do you think he'd be getting his mail for an hour and 20 minutes? According to her, she sees him sitting there reading something. So she's At thinking, 12 p.m. Yeah, so she's thinking, also, oh, maybe he went to go get the mail. This is him out of sight. A mere 40 minutes after that alleged call was supposed to come. 40 minutes later, you're just going to leave your house or leave where no one can find you. And that call might still be coming. He's somewhere in the house. Uh, you, would, you would think, allegedly, he's somewhere mm-hmm. in that house. Did he have Did he have an answer for where he was? Well, I will get into some of their defense okay. in part three, okay. what they have to say. That's, that's what we call a teaser, folks. <laughs> later on, it would be determined that John Ramsey wouldn't have to leave the house to go check the mail because the front door had a mail slot. So they would just slide it in. <laughs> Hour and 20 minutes, go check that mail slot. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. Linda Arndt was left with a cell phone, which she was told to use for communication. Shortly after 12 p.m., she starts to feel like she's losing control of all the people in the house, and she sent two pages for backup. It's not clear on what happened. I, I don't know if it was because she lost sight of John Ramsey or... If something happened that caused her to be like, okay, I need backup, it's not specified anywhere. But she sent two pages out from her cell phone for backup. No one from the Boulder Police Department responds to Detective Linda Arndt's pages for backup, let alone even give her a call to see what the issue is. They just completely ignored her. What are they doing at this time? They're just back at the station? What did did she ever say? What made her call for backup? Was she she ever questioned? She gives some goofy-ass interview years later where she's talking real weird about how she was, like, making sure she had enough bullets in her gun, like, making things sound real dramatic. Yeah, and yeah, I saw that. But she doesn't really specify on what exactly happened that made her be like, yeah. I, I need backup And now. nobody ever thought to ask her, that on record at least. Or unless she didn't want to go on record, I don't know. Like, what was everyone doing during this time, and what was the plan? Like, well, no one was formulating our next steps, or that's what I'm an investigation that. or anything. If like, were they just asking, sitting there? If she's asking for backup, what are they doing? What is she seeing? And then, but why isn't she talking about it? Based off what I read, the only thing I could think of is that John Ramsey's unaccounted for. So she's like. Okay, I need somebody else here because I can't keep an eye on everybody. I can't go look for him and leave the whole rest right. of the room unattended. Right. That's what you would think. But then we, we're going to get to this next part. Well, before we get to this next part, Heather Cox, who was watching Burke at the White's home, received a phone call and was told by Priscilla White to bring Burke Ramsey back to the Ramsey home. Here's the part I was talking about. According to Linda Arndt, around 1 p.m., she wanted to give John Ramsey something to do, so she asked him to search the house, which makes absolutely no sense. If you if that's her problem is that she can't keep an eye on everybody, why tell him to go leave again and search the house? Why also send not a police officer or an investigator <laughs> right. to go start searching the house and touching things? That, and it's six hours later now. Every square inch of this house hasn't been searched yet, Mm-mm. which is crazy. How is that possible? I mean, I know it's a 7,000 square foot house, but... And also, why did you leave one person to cover all of that? What have you been doing this whole time? This makes no sense. It's just one thing after another. I think that's the 150th time you said that this episode, (laughs) and I think you've been right every time. I'm trying to come up with new words to say, because, yeah. (laughs) This is not realistic. 
Mm -mm. You know, and I've listened to other podcasts cover this subject leading up to this just to kind of get a vibe of how everybody was reporting on this. A lot of people tiptoe around saying, I don't want to be too hard on the Boulder Police Department. You know, a lot of other true crime podcasts say that. That's bullshit. This is the most incompetent series of events by a police department I have ever researched in my life. I've never heard of such a thing. If you're losing control of the situation, why would you send... And he was unaccounted for for all that time. Why would you send him wandering around the house? Say, you know what, John? I need... You have... um, You need something to do. Why don't you just go search the house? What does that even mean? Yeah. That's bizarre. Well, the fact that the house hadn't been searched yet. No one's been in the wine cellar room at this point. Or Yeah. Or closed off so that people can't just be in there wandering around. There should be no private citizens in that house and probably eight to 10 detectives searching the entire house in all fairness yeah to the police as far as pe- strain at least fleet white priscilla white and the fernies being in there they were called immediately before the police even got there so they were they already were there about, so they they could have easily just walked into the house before the police even knew anything you know what i mean we're still getting a grasp on the situation so they it but they should have all been put into the same room. Right. By this point, it should have been contained at least. Yeah. Or they should have been asked to leave or whatever. She sends John off to to search the house. Some stories say that she went to Fleet White and not John Ramsey. That she went to Fleet White and said, Hey, go get John to go with you and search the house. Doesn't matter which way it went, it's still ridiculous. Regardless of who asked who head detective steve thomas says that they were instructed to search the house from top to bottom however john ramsey decided to go directly to the basement instead well head detective wasn't even there no he was not (laughs) (laughs) was he there at all period did he show up initially not this day not this first day he was not there okay he was on vacation too according to steve thomas's notes john ramsey led fleet white to the basement where they first went to the train room and examined the broken window. John told Fleet that he had broke it a few months ago. A few months. <laughs> it's just I break a fucking window, whatever. I'll fix it someday. This is also Colorado in winter. Is it not now freezing in that basement? And you're talking about a kid's playroom? That's true. The whole thing is strange. I mean, I'm all of yeah. it. I just don't find that very believable. I, I mean, don't it, find any of that part about John breaking parts of his house to get in. I don't find any of that believable. It's a weird tidbit. Yeah. This broken window is big enough for someone to climb in the window too. And that's a whole debate in itself. Cause there's people that say that it's not possible, but they, the guy that recreated it, they showed him climbing in the window. Yeah. But initially people were saying, no, it's not possible mm. to climb through that window. Just the fact that it is debatable whether or not could a person could fit through it means that hole is still big enough to have that debate in Colorado in December in a kid's playroom and you're just going to let that go for months or there's a bunch of these holes for months this house would be freezing cold it's just not likely that that that, that it's that yeah. that's plausible agree it makes no sense anyway so they search the train room we're all getting fired up at different things in this episode <laughs> The men searched. We're going to need cool down, like a couple cool down beers after all this. And Dave's going to need his salmon spread for his bagel after this one. <laughs> Getting hungry now. So the men next searched the shower, a shower stall that was located in the basement. 
John Ramsey then noticed a fireplace cover propped up in front of a closet, and Fleet White moved it so the closet could be searched. They found nothing, so they moved to the wine cellar room. At 1.04 p.m., according to Steve Thomas's notes, John Ramsey entered the wine cellar room first, turned on the light, and discovered John Bonet's dead body. He yelled something in regard to, the, to that discovery, which is debated on what he yelled. It's reported multiple different ways, something along the lines of, oh, God, my baby, things like that. Mm-hmm. There's also another version out there that says John Ramsey yelled before the light was turned on, which, if that's true... That makes absolutely no sense because Fleet White had opened that door before and didn't turn on the light and didn't see anything. Well, again, Unless John the implication was, that he knew what he was going to He was putting see. on a show. Yeah, yeah, right. But then that report would have come from Fleet, correct? The report that he screamed before the light came on? Is that consistent with anything Fleet has said since? Like, I'm just wondering where the two reports came from if there was only one It's just witness. reported multiple ways in the media is what I was basing this off of. What has Fleet said? Or has that not been... Some of that grand jury testimony yeah, that that's... you're never going to hear. Yeah. John Bonet had black duct tape covering her mouth, a cord around her neck that was attached to a wooden paintbrush, and her hands were bound over her head in front of her. Her hands weren't tied very tight. They were... When they examined her, they were able to just slip them right off. They were... It was not tight. Okay. So not really bound. Right. She was covered by a light-colored blanket... The blanket covered her torso, but not her head, arms, or legs. John Ramsey ripped the duct tape from John Bonet's mouth and attempted to undo the bindings on her hands. Fleet White ran upstairs yelling, called 911, and then ran to the back office located on the first floor to a telephone. Detective Linda Arndt used her cell phone to call 911, and John Ramsey carried John Bonet upstairs and put her on the kitchen floor, contaminating the crime scene of the wine cellar room. It could be a natural reaction. Sure. All of that yeah, could be natural reaction. Pulling the duct tape from her mouth. You're not going to. Of course. Yeah. I mean, your first thought isn't that she's dead. It's just try to save her. So, right. sure. But then again, if you did it, you're covering up by your presence there any physical evidence that, you yeah. know, might right. be present. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. If you subscribe to that theory that, that he did something when he was out wandering around when Linda aren't couldn't account for him and then when she told him to go search uh, he you know mm-hmm. he went right there yeah then for whatever reason linda aren't further contaminates the crime scene by picking john benet's body up again and moving it to the living room by the christmas tree yeah that's just weird why move it again this is where john ramsey kneels beside the body and repeatedly says something like my little angel over and over again and friends had to carry patsy ramsey because she was like ready to pass out is how it's reported. And this is where we go back to the interview that you referenced with Linda Arndt, where she's all wacky talking about the the number of bullets in her gun. And, yeah, and her eyes are like real huge. Had, yeah, she said that they had a weird nonverbal exchange after she told John that John Bonet was dead already. And then she's clutching her gun. She said, I didn't know if when anyone else got here, if we'd all still be alive. Yeah, she got real dramatic. It's weird. <laughs> yeah. Like who had a nonverbal exchange? This uh, detective Arndt and John Ramsey, after she told him that she was dead, like she just got a weird vibe from him, and he didn't know she was dead, like when he found her body. The detective said John asked her if she was dead. Oh, that's a weird interview with hmm. uh, Elizabeth Vargas, like twenty years ago, maybe. Yeah, it's a strange interview for sure. Yeah. Okay. Linda Arndt ordered Fleet White to stand by the door to the basement and guard the door. 
But for whatever reason, Fleet decided to run downstairs to the basement and get the duct tape from the basement floor and bring it back upstairs. Sure. <laughs> and he's just like, I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want. Yeah. That's just so weird, too. Like, why <laughs> would that be your mindset? I'm going to go with that piece of duct tape. Yeah, I don't know. They're going to find it. Well, well, maybe not <laughs> the way this investigation's went. But still, like, just fucking leave it. Yeah. This is all taking place between 1.04 p.m. and 1.23 p.m. At approximately 1.30 p.m., Priscilla White calls her home to stop Burke from being brought back to the house. Around this time, officers Ron Walker and Larry Mason returned to the scene, saw John Bonet's body, searched the home, and finally, after almost eight hours, the full house is declared a crime scene. Yay. So we're there. Man. Shortly after the body was found, John Andrew Ramsey, Melinda Ramsey, and Stuart Long arrived at the Ramsey house. Stuart Long is Melinda Ramsey's boyfriend. Between 1.30 p.m. and 2 p.m., detectives overheard John Ramsey on the phone telling his pilot to get the plane ready that they were going to fly to Atlanta. This is just another really weird, strange detail. Like with 10 this minutes case. after he found her body. Yeah. 10 minutes. Who reported that? Or half hour? Know, or the ju- police. The police overheard him talking on the phone saying, talking to his pilot saying, we, we're going to get the plane ready. We're going to Atlanta. And the police stopped him. At least they did this right, and they stopped him. They're like, you can't leave. Yeah, that's so odd. Like, why you can't leave this crime scene? They're not even telling him he's a suspect at this point. I mean, he's gonna be. But so, so I saw a later interview with them where they asked him about that, and he just, you know, said the police were taking over the house and they had to go somewhere. Like, that's your dead kid's body you know, laying in there, and you're thinking about hotel. getting on a plane? Yeah, stay at your friends who were could be at your house within four minutes, and you're close by. Like, why would you leave the city? Yeah, it's very know. odd. That's one thing. I could, I think, like you said earlier, Ian, I could confidently say if I was in that situation, I would want to be as close as possible to home if I was dealing with this situation. I wouldn't want to leave and go the a whole country, you know, the entire country away to the other the East Coast and go to Georgia. I'm going to say it again. It makes absolutely no sense why, why you would uh, why you would behave that way. Yeah. That's extremely strange. That's really strange behavior. John Ramsey signed a search warrant to allow the house to be searched, which I really don't even know why the police would need that at this point. But I guess maybe they're covering all their bases. I guess I don't know. You would think that they would just be like, I mean, they can smell weed in your car and be like, yeah, you're yeah, fucking right. giving me the whole car. <laughs> But so. they find a body in your basement. We need to just sign this. We yeah. just like to look around. We're not sure we have probable cause <laughs> in this scenario. Because <laughs> we're amateur police officers. <laughs> and people that think the Ramseys had nothing to do with this point this out as like a good thing for the Ramseys. Say, hey, he's got nothing to hide. He signed off on this. You know, The fuck else are you going to do? The, well, then he came out later and said, I didn't know that was a search warrant. I thought I was just signing off on the autopsy. Jeez. Which... Okay, if you're in distress, maybe you're not paying attention. But at this point, there's but a it's lot. Made of, there's seem, a lot of what ifs with this guy. Yeah, and it, but it, and it's made to seem like he wouldn't have signed that search warrant initially without. And which why would you not if you were innocent? Yeah, and I would say search everything. You know. But then that's our PSA. We're always like, hey, you better lawyer up. Yeah, I don't subscribe to that. If you're innocent, why wouldn't you? Theory. I I would in this situation. Why not? Your kid's dead, and if you didn't do it, I would say, go ahead. Anything else you find is fine. But well, There's a lot of people that didn't do it that are sitting in jail right now. 
Yeah. Is it wrong for me to say he's a rich white guy? He doesn't have to worry about that. It's not wrong of you to it's say. It's exactly right. Yeah. It's the truth. 100% the truth. When you- I'm just, my point was, if I'm in this situation, I'm probably just, I'm going to sign that, no questions asked. Yeah. And I'm going to know what it is. I'm not going to claim later I didn't. Yeah. If I'm innocent, I'm going to go ahead and sign that. Regardless, like, I, I, I don't understand why they even needed it, but he says he thought it was the autopsy thing. So it's just it, another odd side note. Yeah. It, and it pile goes, up. Right. And it just goes back and forth. You can mm-hmm. be like, hey, he's doing the right thing. And people, on the other hand, say, no, he's bullshit. He's trying to hide something. He signed. The, he thought he was signing something else. Going back to Linda Arndt moving the body for a second time, she allowed someone to take a blanket and place it over the body once it was moved to the living room. I'm not sure if this was Patsy that did it or someone in that someone in that house at that time put a blanket, a different blanket over her body. Then to go even further, John Benet's feet were still sticking out from the blanket, so Linda Arndt allowed a Colorado Avalanche sweatshirt to be placed over her feet. Again, contaminating the crime scene, allowing any hairs, fibers, anything that could have been on that blanket or sweatshirt to transfer over to JonBenet's clothing or her body. I mean, understandable that you would want to cover her body at that point, but I mean... But as a police officer, you'd be like, you you can't do that. Even if they do ultimately find DNA or fingerprints or anything, it's all contaminated. It's going to be inadmissible at this point. It's worthless. And also probably they shouldn't have had other people there that are able to just put stuff on the body as soon as you have the body everyone needs to get the fuck out of the house this is a crime scene Mm -hmm. whether you live there or not you need to get out of this house yeah no one should have access to go just throw blankets on this body or grab a sweatshirt or grab a sweatshirt (laughs) you know wherever or be in the same room quite frankly Yeah. yeah to even have to worry about covering it up Shortly after John signed the consent to search for him, the Ramseys left their home to go stay with the Fernies. This includes John's older children, John Andrew, Melinda, and her boyfriend. Sometime during the afternoon, John Ramsey called and requested a visit from Michael Bynum, who is reported to be John Ramsey's close friend and corporate attorney. During this visit, John hired Michael to represent him, and Michael advised John to hire additional lawyers, one for Patsy and a separate one for Burke. How this is said is that Michael Bynum had connections in the Boulder Police Department, and he caught word that they're going to make this all about you. So you need we need to get ahead of this, which makes sense. Complete sense. And a lot of people point to that it's strange to have three separate lawyers, you know, and have one for the kid and everything, or for Burke, but we have our, our lawyer friend, and he said that this is just a wealthy guy covering all his bases and can afford to make smart legal decisions and smart i mean still 100 percent stand by don't ever talk to the police without your attorney present and clearly you yeah. have to realize just, you're a suspect at this point i don't know for me it's very hard to even comprehend that's where my where my head would go mm-hmm. i don't think that's something i would even think about you you just found your daughter brutally murdered and within what an hour or two, you're lawyering up. I don't think I would even be able to think logically, let alone start thinking about, oh, I'm going to get blamed for this. Well, like I said, how this is how this is told is that Michael Bynum was like, hey, I caught word that they're going to make this. They're making this all about you and reached out to them. Right. OK, well, that's different. That makes more sense. Well, I mean, if you find a dead kid in the house, the family's 
just by default going to be the number one suspect. I don't disagree with that either. I just don't think if it's my own kid and I'm innocent that that's, I'm not even going to think about that. I I don't, I don't understand how I, I couldn't understand how I would even think about that for days. I would be riddled with grief. Well, yeah. And, but yet I'm going to think about protecting myself. Yeah. But your friend with an inside contact. Well, uh, that's why I said if he contacted me or or if he contacted them, I think that's different. Yeah. So I I feel like our, our, uh, our lawyer friend would probably contact one of us. If, if, if something similar to this ever happened, would probably contact us and say, Hey, you need to, you need to hire somebody. I I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) And, and I think that's different as opposed to, I was understanding it as, as John contacted him, but if he reached out to John, then I think that makes more sense. I agree. Yeah. And we'll be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We like to drink beer, a lot of it. After a long night of drinking and talking crime and conspiracies, there's nothing that wakes us up and gets us ready to start the day better than Just Brew Coffee. With a great selection of roast levels to choose from, you're guaranteed to find one that suits your style. Small batch roasted to highlight the unique features of each coffee bean, Just Brew Coffee caters to both casual and hardcore coffee drinkers alike. Since 2010, Just Brew Coffee has worked tirelessly to perfect the roasting process and technique, which has resulted in seriously delicious, always flavorful, and never bitter-tasting coffee. If you're already drinking JBC, raise your mug. If you're not, raise your standards. Check out their online store at youjustbrew.com and up your coffee game today. Use code NECRO15 to receive 15% off your order of two pounds or more. And remember, they roast, you just brew. So before we get into the details on the autopsy and what happened to John Bonet, I just want to hit on some further incompetence in contamination. When Dr. Meyer used fingernail clippers to clip John Bonet's nails for potential DNA regarding defensive measures like her scratching her attacker, he used the same clippers for all her fingers, even though he should have used separate and sterile clippers for each one. So, I mean, if she nicks someone with her middle finger and not her index, it's that it's contaminated. Mm-hmm. It was also later learned that the coroner's office sometimes used the same clippers on different autopsy subjects. Jesus. That <laughs> doesn't sound good at all. Just, uh, just doing whatever we want out here. Yeah. I wonder how prevalent that is in crime labs across the country. I mean, how many innocent people are in fucking prison because of something like that? Whew. And this is the thing with con- this is like with conspiracy theories and stuff. I feel like and I might be getting ahead of myself with some of this, but nine times out of ten, I feel like conspiracy theories are just incompetent and or lazy people handling a situation, and it leaves the door open for all kinds of nonsense to be placed in to fill the holes. Okay, I feel like a lot of this can just be blamed on incompetence. A lot of the missteps here. And it just leaves the door open for all kind of other bullshit to be piled on top. You mean for like this story specifically? 
I, I would could agree say, that that's the same like thing that. with most conspiracy theories, so, in my opinion. So what you're alluding to is that you think there's a pretty straightforward answer, but because of the incompetence by the police, it's opened the door for all these conspiracy theories. Right. Okay. Because any conclusion you come to is suspect because of all these things that took place. I, I get that. That makes sense to me. I think that, yeah. There's also an issue with the time of death. There was never truly a time of death placed on John Bonet in this case. Her autopsy lists her time of death at 1.23 p.m., which is the agreed time, or the, the agreed upon time that her body was brought up from the wine cellar. The coroner's office put out a statement defending themselves regarding this, saying an unwitnessed time of death or an unwitnessed death is hard to put a time of death on. And I get that, but it, it just to me this comes off lazy and I'm not completely sure why they couldn't shrink that window down a little bit. I feel like when do they isn't that very odd to mark the time of death as the discovery of the body? Yeah. Like they're always like we covered the Chris Benoit one. They were able to put like almost to the hour based on the decomposition when the bodies were discovered. That happens or all when, the time. When they, when they died. Like that's, that's so fucking weird. I mean, every dead body doesn't, you know, there's, doesn't have a, an eyewitness at the time that they actually expired. Right. And you, I've never heard of it posted as the time that, they found the body. I mean, they estimate based on decomposition and rigor mortis and all kinds of right. things. Yeah, absolutely. We've put, we've talked about the pineapple. We've alluded to it. We've been alluding to that goddamn pineapple. <laughs> and we're going to get to it. But based off of that, experts were able to narrow this window down. And we'll get to it. But you know she was last seen at 10, at 10 p.m., and I know there's other experts that have looked at the rigor mortis that had set in at the time. You would think that you could shrink that down, this window down, and not just put 123 on it. Not you would think. You can. Yeah. Why didn't they? <laughs> and they just mark it as an estimated time of death on the, the death certificate, right. right? Isn't that how it's I you would I would imagine done? so, because you yeah. can't you don't never know for sure. Yeah. This is what I mean about laziness and incompetence that can open the door for all kind of bullshit this is this is in my opinion this is completely asinine well this is not even the police department now this incompetence is spread to the coroner's office right and i just don't know like i don't know who who oversees the coroner the county right it's an elected official in most places like how do you take that and accept that as the answer like there was no no one that said no. I mean, well, the coroner is the authority job. on the on the certificate. I don't know that it can be questioned. That's what I'm asking. Like, I don't think it can be questioned. Yeah, he's the head guy in charge. Look, if you're if you're Wonder using this ass one reelection, <laughs> I'd hope not. If you're using the same fingernail clippers on multiple bodies, I don't think it's outside the realm to just be like, I ah, just fuck it, throw a time on there. I mean, if you're yeah. lazy in one area, it's likely you're <laughs> no, lazy you're right. in several I mean, other areas. Right. Since that 911 was call was placed at 5:52, the police have handled this poorly. Yeah, everybody involved has handled it completely ridiculous. And then Steve Thomas, who who wrote a good book about this, and he was playing. He wasn't there that day. He, who he, was Steve Thomas, again? the head detective? The but one. he was not there that day. So, and he's playing catch up on all this mm-hmm. stuff, and it's already fucked. Why was he not there that day? Was he just off? Yeah, because it's Christmas. It's the day after Christmas. Yeah. but it's... Who was in charge that day? <laughs> Nobody, <laughs> apparently. Dwight Schrute, <laughs> you know, volunteer <laughs> deputy. And this is the guy, I think, that we learn later refused help from the FBI when they offered it because he thought 
you know, I'm gonna you're, I'm gonna do things my way. Yeah, I think that's the guy, right? Yeah, and there's how that work out, pal? <laughs> Take some more days off. There, there's also an issue. I think we'll get into it in part three of um, politics getting involved, where the DA, the police didn't like the DA because of his politics, and everybody couldn't work together just based off of their political beliefs, and shit got really. Uh, muddy just based on just the ego and and that kind of stuff that's what happens one more note and and we'll clear this up later on too some things we're going to bring up when it comes to her when it comes to john benet's injuries are going to be from a defamation lawsuit filed against the ramses by a guy named chris wolf the ramses named him as a suspect in their book so he came back and sued them Federal Judge Julie Carnes ruled in the Ramsey's favor, and some things regarding her injuries are going to be brought up from from her ruling. I'm not saying that she's correct or anything. I'm just saying we're going to cover all sure all bases, and all of it's really up for debate. Just to clear up who Chris Wolf is, he he was a reporter in Boulder, Colorado, and the in the Ramsey's claimed he was a suspect in the book. Hmm. Well, that's interesting in and of itself. Yeah. And he'll be one of the suspects we discuss in part three. Right. We'll see you next week, folks. <laughs> <laughs> so getting to the autopsy, pathologist John E. Meyer said, The body of a six-year-old female was first seen by me after I was called to an address identified as 749 15th Street in Boulder, Colorado. I arrived at the scene at approximately 8 o'clock p.m. and entered the house where the decedent's body was located. At approximately 8.20 p.m., I initially viewed the body in the living room of the house. The decedent was lying on her back on the floor covered by a blanket and a Colorado Avalanche sweatshirt. On removing these two items from the top of the body, the decedent was found to be lying on her back with her arms extended up over her head. The head was turned to the right. A brief examination of the body disclosed a ligature around the neck and a ligature around the right wrist. Also noted was a small area of abrasion or contusion below the right ear on the lateral aspect of the right cheek. A prominent dried abrasion was present on the left lower neck. After examining the body, I left the residence at approximately 8.30 p.m. So it took six and a half hours she lay there until the coroner got there? Yeah, yeah I, don't, I didn't even think of that. Six and a half what hours? What the fuck was happening during that time? What was the coroner doing? I mean, there's not a lot of murders in Boulder, Colorado. John Benet Ramsey was the only murder to happen that year in Boulder, Colorado. There you go. Wondering if they had a call from another county, get another coroner to come in, if he was on uh, also Christmas vacation. I mean, I know. I but like still watch, six hours. I like watching that show, that first 48 that's on A&E every once in a yeah. while. I, I know from watching that, that bodies lay there for a while. Mm. Okay. Can you, before first 48, they've killed almost 24 hours in just what's led to this. Yeah. Fucking just shenanigans. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay. Maybe that's how it is. I mean, that's not that out of the ordinary. I mean, I can't remember like a specific time, but I, I can't Why remember. is it so hard? You're an elected official then. Motherfucker, you're on call for this shit. You would think so. Yeah. And I mean, in fairness to the first 48, those are big cities where there's shit going down all the time. True. But so I, maybe I, that's why it takes them a longer yeah. to get there. Like, but I do remember watching some episodes and being like, like looking at the clock, you know, at the bottom when they like roll how much time has passed. I'm like, God damn, that person's been laying in the middle of the street for a long ass time. I mean, is it more likely that the police, you know, and city hall, everyone was huddled up talking with the coroner about how to handle this? 
That seems more likely. Possibly. Yeah, I That's didn't even the think delay. of that. Why that, though? Why? Just the same kind of CEO, rich person treatment we've been discussing this whole time. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Just supposing. I don't yeah. know. In, in this story, I mean, it's that makes more sense to some of the shit they did. So at 10.45 p.m., John Benet Ramsey's body was removed from the home to go have the autopsy performed. That was, again, another two hours later. And she's just yeah. been laying there forever. Like I said, I went, when I watched that show a couple times, I'm thinking, like, man, that they've left that person laying out. I mean, they're covered and everything, but they're. Mm-hmm. I'm sure she was in a in a body bag at this point. Yeah. But it's like, man, they left that person laying there for a long time. So the official cause of death was, quote, asphyxia by strangulation associated with cranial cerebral trauma. So M- Meaning her head got bashed in. Exactly. Yeah. So Ian sent me a list of, what was it? Like the autopsy, like list of injuries? It's kind of the summary. And because I, very, I live a very rich and fulfilling life, I spent my Friday night sitting at my computer Googling all of these terms to kind of break it down simply for us. I very much appreciate it. I was feeling <laughs> extremely bogged down by all these, uh, all these fancy words that I have no idea what they mean. And it, it started off slow for me, like figuring them all out. But then once I figured out like a few of them, I was like, oh, okay. And I was able to kind of breeze my way through them. Are um, you considered a medical professional at this point? Well, this is why I was got hired as a volunteer oh, because okay. of this knowledge now. <laughs> Um, so like if you're on a plane and they call for a doctor, will you stand up now because you're, no, no. you know all these injuries no, and how no. to treat them? Like a hostage negotiation, and okay. then also I can perform autopsies. Okay. Oh, okay. That's it. That's it. No, I'm not, I can't save your life. I can tell you how you died. Like, oh, that motherfucker choked on that pretzel. You know, something like that. I put that in my official report. Time of death? Eh, Tuesday. Because apparently that's what passes in Boulder, Colorado. If you were with a guy and he started foaming at the mouth, would you give him mouth-to-mouth resuscitation to save his life? Not just a guy, anyone. Just someone, some guy, some girl, some kid. I don't think it would be needed. Would foaming at the mouth require... <laughs> well, they stopped breathing, but they were additionally... It's this guy. Additionally I mean, foaming to... at the mouth. Sure. Okay. To save someone's life, I would. All right. I'd try. I wouldn't know what the hell I was doing, but... I'd be better if you called me after and said, hey, how'd this guy die? And I'd tell you and give you a report. <laughs> that's, what I'd be, that's where my talents would be better used. But sh- I think I would. Okay. Would you? Or would it depend on who the person was? Like if it was a stranger, maybe not? No, I'm just, I, I, I think I would just start vomiting everywhere. I don't know that I physically well, I would imagine could. you'd wipe the foam away. I'm right? getting sick just thinking about it. <laughs> you, you, yeah. I understand. That would be gross. I like to think I could, but I, I don't know. I feel like I would try, but I would probably fuck it up worse than uh, I'd probably do something wrong because I wouldn't know what the hell I was doing. You've seen The Office. Ah, ah, <laughs> yeah. ah, ah, staying alive. That's true. Staying alive. So the summary, I'll go through this as quick as I can. Uh, ligature strangulation, which is essentially strangulation with a, a weapon of some sort, a cord or a rope. Circumferential ligature with associated ligature furrow of neck. Ligature furrow means a deep groove commonly caused by a cord or rope strangulation. Uh, this is a common kind of injury among hanging victims, you know, kind of a deep groove or cut in their neck. Abrasions and petechial hemorrhages on the neck, which are essentially open wounds and red or purple spots on the skin of the neck caused by broken capillary blood vessels. Petechial hemorrhages, con- conjunctival surfaces of eyes and skin of face. 
These are essentially the same hemorrhages, the red or purple spots on the skin caused by broken capillaries, but these are now on the eyes and the face. So if your eyes get bloodshot or like... Mm. Right. Craniocerebral injuries, which are head and brain injuries, which we discussed. Scalp contusion, bruise on the top of the head or on the, the scalp. Linear comminuted fracture of right side of skull, which is a skull fracture. Linear pattern of contusions of right cerebral hemisphere. This is bruising on the brain. Subarachnoid and subdural hemorrhage. Subarachnoid is a life-threatening type of stroke caused by bleeding into the space surrounding the brain. So it's it's bleeding on the brain. And subdural uh, means bleeding that often occurs outside the brain as a result of a severe head injury. Small contusions, tips of temporal lobes, that's bruising on the temporal lobe of the brain, which is commonly associated with auditory language and speech uh, comprehension. Abrasion on the right cheek, which is essentially an open wound on the cheek. Abrasion and contusion on the posterior right shoulder, which is an open wound on the right shoulder. Abrasions of the lower back and posterior left lower leg, open wounds on the left lower back and back of the left leg. Abrasion and vascular congestion of vaginal mucosa. Um, This is essentially, um, abrasion is an open wound that's caused by the skin rubbing against a rough surface. Uh, Vascular congestion is engorgement or swelling of the blood vessels. So it's it's bruising and wounds and swelling um, in the vagina. Ligature of right wrist, which is bruising or marking on a wrist caused by the roper cord. That's a lot of injuries. So that's, that's how I spent my Friday night. I appreciate it. It's a real feel-good Friday. Yeah. (laughs) It's a long list of things to happen to a little six-year-old girl. That's extremely, yeah, depressing to think about. So how we're going to do this, we're just going to start at the top and work work our way down. I mean, so that was the official autopsy report. Correct. And now we're going to jump ahead to this lawsuit with, uh, what's the guy's name? Chris Ford? Uh, Chris Wolf. Chris Wolf. That happened years later, but because they extensively, you know, dove in and analyzed the autopsy report it's a good you know example or a good discussion on what it actually all meant yeah and some of it's like everything else some of it's debate some of the findings are debated most of the findings are actually debated people argue a lot of this stuff but um, there's like expert testimony by pathologists and and outside sources on yeah the report itself yeah it's not like average uh, people are just weighing in here they had top top doctors yeah. and stuff so it's not like a reddit discussion board uh, <laughs> right. okay some jackass on the <laughs> internet so uh her head injury when john benet was first discovered there was no sign of head injury there was no blood at the scene and no damage to her head was visible it wasn't until the autopsy was performed that it was discovered the that fr- seems very odd well we can bring him up now and that's according to who what? I mean, I guess they can go back and they checked that there was no blood in the wine cellar, right? Like yeah, there's nothing. Before. So you can see the crime scene photos online. There's no injury. I choose. I know. I choose not to go yeah. look at those. There's no blood. Her hair's not bloody at all. So we're gonna bring him up in a bit here. But Doctor Warner Spitz. But the crime scene photos also of her body are not in the cellar. They're upstairs because she was moved. Right. But still, there's no blood on her head. Yeah. I. I mean. I, okay. I guess that's plausible. I just feel like if you're going to, with the amount of injuries to her head, you would imagine there'd be some blood. Well, well not necessarily, right? Not with no. that type of injury? Well, because Dr. Werner Spitz, we're going to talk about him in a little while, too. We're going to bring him up. But people who are real into true crime and stuff will know him from the West Memphis Three. 
Okay. I mean, the guy's been involved in tons of cases, but that's one of the big ones that he was involved in. He's mm-hmm. the guy that remember how the kids' genitals were all mutilated in that case. I'll be honest, I am not really that familiar with that case. Oh, okay. So the th- possibly a future episode for us. Oh yeah, for sure. So the three boys that were found dead, their genitals, or at least one of their genitals was mutilated. And that's what the prosecution ran with, which said it was mutilation. Werner Spitz looked at it because the boys were in a pot or in a, in a Creek. Mm-hmm. He looked at it and immediately he was like, this is not mutilation. This is turtles biting mm. on their dead body, which Jeez. I mean, animals do that, you know, but he was like, this is bites by a turtle. And he was part of the, you know, the help of getting them, okay. getting them off. So his opinion of looking at, as far as the head injury is concerned is that a six-year-old's their scalp is more flexible than an adult's, and when you're bringing out down something blunt, this wouldn't be sharp, like people point to a golf club, because we'll get into it. Bert mm-hmm. hit her with the golf club back mm-hmm. in the day, before. He says that you could hit a child with something blunt like that in the top of their head, and it their scalp would form to it and it wouldn't cause a I, I, it makes sense like like the skin's pliable and it'll just cave in with the skull and not actually right with something blunt. open up yeah and that makes sense that's his opinion on that hmm. the fracture in her skull measured eight inches in length and 1.75 inches wide that's an enormous hole there was a rectangular area of this fracture toward the middle caused by what you would assume would be whatever hit her. And this rectangular area was 1.75 inches by half inch. Dr. Meyer found a small amount of blood outside the brain but could not specify in the autopsy whether it was the blow to the head that actually caused her death or if it was the strangulation. He couldn't tell what came first. Right. He does not make any judgments on that Mm. well i'm sure they were both in close proximity time wise to each other right so i'm sure that's hard to make that call yeah and i agree yeah that's during that lawsuit according to michael doberson judge julie karn's ruling says quote although no head injury was visible when she was first discovered the autopsy revealed that she received a severe blow to her head shortly before or around the time of murder Presence of hemorrhage does indicate that the victim was alive when she sustained the head injury. However, the relative small amount of subdural hemorrhage indicates that the injury occurred in the premortem parentheses close to death period. So they're saying the lack of bleeding in the brain would mean that she was either she was pretty close to being dead. Meaning she was already being strangled and it wasn't working quick enough and they decided to finish her off? Or did someone find her close to death and then decided to finish her off mm. there's also theories of if it, if you're going down the road of um we're just we're just kind of spitballing yeah we're going down a deep dive if you go down the road of that it was a sexually motivated person an outside intruder that was sexually motivated there's theories that they were sh- strangling her for sexual purposes they thought that they had killed her because they choked her too hard got frustrated and hit her on the top mm. of the head because there's also uh, there's some evidence that experts point to with the temporal bruising in her brain that the autopsy says that you would get that that is common when you shake a child 
really revive hard. her. Right. So the person could have thought they choked her too hard mm. and started shaking her, which would give her the mm. the bruising on their temp on the the temporal lobes. Also quoted in the judge's findings was, quote, the court has not been able to determine from the record how close to death the premortem period would have been. So they just believe that it happened shortly before, but they can't tell mm-hmm. how how close to, to death it was. As far as what could have caused the blow to the head, there is a flashlight that gets brought into question a lot. There was a heavy black police-style flashlight that was found in the Ramsey's, on the Ramsey's kitchen table and in their 1998 interview with the police, they said that it didn't belong to them. Police found that this flashlight had been wiped of all fingerprints, including the batteries inside. Uh, okay. And going back to Dr. Werner Spitz, he fully believes that it was the flashlight that caused mm. the head. And I watched a thing where he recreated it. Like I saw that too. Yeah. yeah. And it made a, it made the, and the skull. Caved the head in. Almost exactly the same look. I mean, have you ever went in your kitchen and found like a mag light, big, you know, black flashlight on your sitting on your table that wasn't yours? Mm. I mean, come on, right? Where'd that's, it come from? That's odd. And it's wiped down of all fingerprints. Yeah, including there's also, the but there's also been a ton of people and a ton of cops in the house too. It's just like it was somebody might have left it sitting yeah, there. You mean? It's just weird. Like the police, it was not. Um, it was not a police issue. It was just mm. police style. It was not the same brand that the Boulder police issued. It fit, I mean, it fits. It know. made yeah. this according Sitting to there. Yeah. It's just weird. I mean, there's so many people in the house at this point that it's, you know, it's questionable who brought it there is what I'm saying. I'm not saying it, it, it sounds like it probably could have been used, but who's to say where it came from? But what's the scenario? You've I'm also sorry. had so many people in the house. Right. And what's the scenario where you did this in the basement, but then you brought the flashlight back up to the kitchen? Well, I guess as you're writing the ransom note to cover your unanticipated murder. That's what I, but like, okay. like, like, like the same thing as the ransom note for a body that's already killed in the basement. You're just trying to throw people off. Maybe, I don't know. But if you had done a thorough investigation, maybe you would have noticed that flashlight sitting there at 6 a.m. when you entered the home. And then you could have documented that it was already sitting there. Meanwhile, we don't know when this mm-hmm. flashlight was discovered. Right. I mean. It was just kind of there. Yeah. No one knows when it showed up there. Yeah, no, I mean, no one was you would paying presume attention. it was whenever the police showed up because it was not a police issue. Flashlight. Or, or was it later? The bagel people, you know, wiped it down because they spilled Maybe they a moved cup of coffee it. on Maybe it. Maybe they yeah, moved right. it off of an end table and were cleaning something up and just put it there. Like, that's what I'm saying. Like, there's so many people in the home. You don't know who's touching what. Maybe when they're having people search the home, someone grabbed it to look in a cupboard or a closet and then set it down. Well, and then they go, oh, my God, I shouldn't have touched this. Then they wiped it down. You get scared. I mean, this is what what happens when you don't run a crime scene properly, that you open all this potential evidence up to this. Regardless, the Ramsey say that they did not own it, so it did not come from them. Allegedly. Allegedly. Well, most people don't own a big maglite flashlight, right? No. I mean, he did work for uh, what a company that probably had stuff like this, right? Probably, I guess. Doctor Ronald White, the director of the forensic pathology department at University of Miami School of Medicine, told Rocky Mountain News, "Quote: The blow to her head, which Wright is convinced was not from a golf club, but more likely a blunt object such as a baseball bat or heavy flashlight, came first. 
and came first as in she was hit before she was strangled, which that just contradicts. Yeah, that makes it a different so, crime altogether. In part right. three, we're going to talk more about this golf club, right? Yes. Okay, so I'll pin in that one. We can talk about the, ba- the baseball bat real quick because we just said the heavy flashlight, they, they did find a mag's. Well, a baseball bat would make sense if it was a flashlight and for the like of a blunt object. Right. If you're not going to cause blood, it would make sense. There was a baseball bat found, but it had no no DNA evidence or anything that would suggest that it was used. And how common is a baseball bat in a home? Pretty common. Yeah. Oh yeah. As opposed to like a you know high grade flashlight, right? Had no place probably in that home. Yeah. There's also the issue of the green garland in her hair. Detective Linda Arndt told the Denver Post, quote, According to Detective Linda Arndt, who witnessed the autopsy, green Christmas garland, like the garland decorating the spiral staircases in the house, was tangled in her hair. However, this detail was not noted in the autopsy summary released to the public, and there's really no reason to redact something like that. That's something you would include. Yeah, I guess. Unless they thought but it was, why just was it irrelevant, not- side note. Yeah, but why was it? That's incompetence. If yeah. you can't just yeah. say it's irrelevant, you can't. I mean, yeah, you can't be like, like, eh, she's got some How- shit in her hair. I'm just gonna not report it. That maybe matched the same green garland <laughs> that the you know the neighbor had on there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This might just show my lack of knowledge of true crime from whatever. But how common is it to have a publicly released autopsy report as opposed to a like stuff they keep hidden like is that common i don't think so i mean i think it's public record like the full-fledged report i don't know it's not no Mm -mm. so no because this guy that people locally have brought up to us to to cover Mm -hmm. his is not public record is it just a death certificate that's public record yeah so if the police, you have to push for the autopsy. If the police said to this this reporter or the the the, the coroner, "Hey, don't release that because we're investigating," and then he could just say, "Okay, I'm not I'm not going to put that in my report." Wait, say that one more time. If the police said to this coroner, "Hey, don't put that Garland thing because we're," and they they said we're still investigating that and that could cause problems for our investigation, he could just say, "Okay, I'm going to exclude that from my public report." And then meanwhile, there's a hidden report or confidential report that we don't have access to. It's possible. I mean, I'm I'm just asking, is that common in these types of situations? I don't know if it's common, but I would say that that's possible. I Uh, Completely possible. Yeah, that they he didn't include it. It doesn't seem like it's something that you would not include. But yeah, I mean, he could. Because Linda Arndt had more time with this body than probably anyone else. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, if she's keeping the, well, she should have been keeping the family away, but... I mean, she picked John Bonet up and moved her right. the second time. So yeah, I mean, she well, and she was present at the autopsy, right? And she's saying there's this green garland, yeah. in her, the hair. That's just that's an interesting one to me. And some people say, you know, I mean, that would lead you to suspect that John Bonet was carried down. Well, that just changes, like that sets up a whole narrative for the story, it, like yeah, of what might have happened. It sends you down a whole different path. Mm-hmm. The black duct tape that was on JonBenet's mouth was not sourced to the Ramsey's home. In Judge Carden's opinion, the strip of duct tape found on JonBenet's mouth had bloody mucus on it and a, quote, perfect set of child's lip prints, which did not indicate a tongue impression or resistance. 
quote, both ends of the duct tape found on her return, indicating it came from a roll of tape that had been used before. Animal hair alleged to be from a beaver was found on the duct tape, yet nothing in the defendant's home matches the hair, thereby suggesting either that the duct tape had been obtained from outside the home or it had been carried outside the home at some point. It's worth noting from Steve Thomas that none of Patsy Ramsey's fur coats or other garments that she owned that had fur were ever allowed to be tested. Uh, Steve Thomas mm. was the, the, head the head detective again. That was something they wanted to do and they were not allowed to do. They per, per who? The family. Like, I don't know. That just seems weird to me. Like, obviously, we don't have beavers just all over the place here, but we have a lot of deer. Would there just be deer hair on a roll of tape you have in your garage, Dave? Like, that's odd. Mm. Well, that's why it's... it's so the, the coats makes a lot of sense. Either if it's an outside intruder... They came in contact with one of the. If it's a, if it, if these coats have anything to do with it, you, you would think that the person either came in contact with the coat, which is would be odd, or it's just another fucking another piece that doesn't fit, yeah. or what? Like they were outside hiding and it blew in the wind, a piece of hair and landed on that tape. Like that just seems that's extremely far fetched, right? Yeah. You're so just why chilling is outside there beaver, and beaver hairs? Hair? <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Like we don't have a ton of beavers, but we have a ton of deer in this area. Every night I walk home from your house, I'm fucking walking our gauntlet of eight or ten of them staring at me, ready to maul me to bits. I believe this, dude. I swear, I will send you a picture. Ga- the gauntlet, next time. dude. They're on both sides of the street. They're, they line up waiting for him to come, and they just fucking stare at me, ready to mutilate me. I'm telling you, you'll be doing an episode on me in the case of the fucking devil deer. <laughs> I'll send you a picture next time I walk past them. The point is, there are a ton of deer in this neighborhood at night. Yeah. Last week you were driving me home and there was a deer in the uh on the sidewalk. So I mean they're there. <laughs> but I, <laughs> the, my point is I think we're talking about my point clothing is, though, not someone coming into contact with an actual beaver, right? But you were you were saying outside if they came from outside. This judge has ruled, in her opinion. That the presence of these beaver hairs, would, that she, in her opinion, means it came from outside the home. That the tape came from outside the home. And there, but and, Steve and Thomas that would, uh, make people believe it came from somebody else's fur coat, not just wild animals no outside. One, Possibly, she's not even saying fur coat. She's they're just saying these are beaver. She's just hairs. saying outside the home because we, but we also don't know what mom's coats. Right, that's what Steve Thomas points out is that. They were never tested. She had fur coats. I mean, I don't know what fur coats are made out of. I guess beaver. I, I thought minks. Maybe she had some beaver too. I never. I, just, I, I guess know. I don't know. I don't maybe know. she had some bootleg ones maybe where they throw in some random animals. I was saying, maybe there's some mutt ones, which is a mix of all. <laughs> right, the that's a- What's the Seinfeld episode? <laughs> he buys the hairs, and it was like from street rats. The the hats. <laughs> remember that episode? Do you like want? You don't watch Seinfeld? Like Did the you? Russian hat? Yeah. Remember they bought the Russian hats. And it was it was supposed to be like mink or beaver, and it was like made out of like rat hair. Yeah, I mean, you could. I, I would assume there's cheaper versions. Just because you're got a lot of money doesn't mean you're. I don't know. Beaver doesn't seem shit. cheap though. I don't think. Like, I don't know the value of animals to be honest. I don't either. I'm not a big game hunter. I I I don't know. It seems like it'd be just as hard to catch a beaver as it is a mink. So. I don't even know what a yeah, mink what is. Yeah, what the fuck's a mink? Like a, a little, fox? Like little a little same kind of small animal, I believe. All I know is I'm is I am hunted every week I leave here, and those deer are looking at me, <laughs> fucking terrified. Me. Why they're couldn't gonna, they? Get... <laughs> they're gonna attack me. Why couldn't they get a warrant to test these uh, 
The coats? To test the coats. That's what I'm saying. Like, why? Maybe that more of this treatment that we're talking about. They don't want to upset this family. But. See? That just seems. There's beaver hair on tape. And we don't necessarily know beaver hair to be made out of fur coats. I'm going to Google it while you guys are debating this. Yeah, we're going to have to go back and change all this when you prove us wrong. And it's not likely that fucking wild beaver hair is blowing on this tape. So. Yeah. Well, it must be a thing or it wouldn't be referenced in the in the ruling. I mean, beaver coats must exist or it wouldn't even no, be a I question. Agree. I, I would imagine no, she, beaver the, coats. The, the judge doesn't reference the coats. She just says that there's beaver hairs present. I, I know, but I don't think we're talking about contact with wild beavers, are we? Well, she maybe she the judge rules in fa- she, is. she is. She rules in favor of the Ramses in this case, saying it was an outside intruder. That this tape must have come from outside. Regarding the findings of her vaginal area, doctors have thrown out different opinions on this. The general consensus is that there's no signs of conventional rape, which means a male inserting his penis. Okay. No signs of that. No signs of that. And I would imagine you'd be able to tell, you know, on like a six-year-old child, that'd be pretty prevalent if there was like actual rape. Yeah, as as disgusting as it is to talk about. Right. Yeah. Molestation would have been from a finger or another foreign object. Some doctors also point that because John Bonet had issues of bedwetting, this could be caused from excessive or hard wiping. There's experts that have thrown that out that that's possible. Wow. Hmm. Because there was, like we said earlier, there was signs of trauma internally right. right there was swelling there was bruising so but, but they said it wasn't consistent with conventional rape right but the general consensus from the, all that doctors and experts and we'll get into it with the 2003 ruling is that the ramses and outside doctor everybody agrees that there was some form of sexual assault happened in her case not exactly sure what but something something took place, took place. and we just brought up the bedwetting so I want to touch on this for a minute because I'm not even going to acknowledge it in part three. She was known to wet the bed pretty frequently. So prevalent that the housekeeper would come in to do the house and she would say that Patsy had already taken the sheets off the bed and like done that job because she kept wetting the bed. Some people point out that kids that are molested revert back to wetting the bed a lot. Mm-hmm. But I'm I want to be 100% clear that there is never there's no evidence and there's never been any evidence that the Ramseys ever molested her or that she was ever molested in the past. This is only like right before her death is what they're talking about here. Mm-hmm. So one of the theories is that Patsy got pissed off because she wet the bed for the millionth time and accidentally threw her or hit her or something along those lines. That is so absurd that I'm not even going to bring that up in part three because that's completely ridiculous. You Look at the crime scene photos. Look at that skull fracture that was not done by a mom. Accidentally. Accidentally throwing a child because she was wetting the bed. And the mental gymnastics you have to do to piece all that together, putting a, a garage, not even a garage, this weird noose around her neck and... Mm-hmm. For bedwetting, it doesn't. Make, it makes no sense at all. So the fact that you're even acknowledging it means that's a pretty prevalent theory out yeah. there. It is. Wow. There's a lot of ridiculous shit out there about this, and that spawned from the um, 
the maid or the 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 nanny or whoever or who who was the one that came out and said she wet the bed a lot. Well, there was urine found on her underwear when she was dead. So that's consistent with the story that she wet the bed. Either she wet the bed or she or or even in the in the trauma. Yeah, I mean, as graphic as this is, when you're strangled, if she died from being strangled to death, your sure. body releases. Yeah. So it's possible that she either wet the bed or, because people say that, oh, she had urine on her pants, so she wet the bed, Patsy got pissed off, and but if you're strangled to death, you are going to urinate. So there's literally people that just hear, she wet the bed a lot, and occasionally mom would clean that up before the uh, the help got there. Right. And so now they're piecing together, oh, mom killed her in a fit of rage. Yeah, and some people just, like I said, do like mental gymnastics, just jump. Yeah, that's through hoops to try and figure to try and blame somebody in this case. And it's like that, it makes no, that makes even less sense than anything else we've talked about. In my opinion, that's the worst one yet. I mean, it's such a stretch to even yeah. come up with that. A lot of kids. Wet and also their really wild just to assume that a parent would kill their kid over that. Yeah. Like I'm, I wouldn't even be comfortable sta- stating something. Let's like just that. say it's accidental, but you look at that, look, look at that skull fracture and that is not an accident. Well, where that's no. what I mean. Like the injuries are not an accident. So right. if you're stating that theory, I don't know how you can confidently state it was an accident. I mean, even getting upset with a six year old girl for wetting her bed seems a little absurd. I, uh, yeah, I don't know. I agree. I mean, I could see it maybe after a millionth time and you'd be in a little like, God damn it, but not to do anything remotely close to, to this. put your hands on them. That's dumb. I just wanted to touch on that because it's out there a lot. It was reported by RMN in 1998. That Rocky Mountain News. <laughs> the quote, Boulder County Coroner John Meyer, who conducted the autopsy on six-year-old John Binet, said the child's pubic area showed evidence consistent with having been wiped by a cloth. He did not rec- include this information in the autopsy port, or at least that we know, because, I mean, that wasn't in the public one like you pointed out, which I didn't even That's think just of. weird. But like you said, it, it could be in the non-public version. Like the garland. Yeah, like that, but, but this whole but wiping of... Yeah, so it looked like his the pubic region was wiped by a cloth. Right, that's what they reported on that he said. Is that unusual? I don't know. Yeah. But not by, it wouldn't be by him. It would have been by whoever did so something it, it to her, up, her. Cleaned up of ejaculate? Yeah. That's what I first thought of. Like, okay. what else you clean it up? Blood, but there wasn't necessarily signs of any blood. Just a little bit. So it could have been that, maybe. Judge Carnes' findings regarding this, uh, quote, both parties agree the autopsy report reveals injuries to John Bonet's genitalia consistent with sexual assault shortly before her death. Quote, the bleeding in John Bonet's genital area indicates she was alive when she was assaulted. Quote, her hymen was torn and material consistent with the wooden shards from the paintbrush used to make the garrote were found in her vagina. So that's, that's probably about as dark as we're gonna Ugh. get in this episode. It's that's and that's the kind of stuff that just fired me up with doing this because all these things make it sound like she was like uh, we're just gonna point fingers at everybody. Everybody, it just seems like it all gets lost, and no one actually wants to the brutality of this. Ignite, you want to blame a mom for accidentally killing her for wetting the bed, but you're not gonna look at the fact that a broken. Mm-hmm paintbrush was used to to rape this child 
Yeah, I think that's a great point. Like that's that doesn't fit that scenario absolutely at not. all. No, I'm not even sure that fits a cover up scenario. You know, and again, we'll we'll get to that in part three. But meaning, like, if you thought Burke did it, and the like parents were Burke, just trying to cover it up, that's not what they would. It just wouldn't gonna, happen. You're not gonna. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't. I at least I don't think so. I don't think that's plausible. That's yeah. The device used to strangle John Bonet was not a true garrote, as you would think when you watch or listen to something about this case, because everybody says garrote. It was more like a dog leash with a slip knot around her neck, leading to it being tied around a broken paintbrush handle that was sourced to be from the Ramsey's home. So Judge Karn's findings regarding the... We're just going to call it a garrote because everybody else does, because it gets used so much in all these quotes... For the sake of this, we'll just we'll go along with it and say it's a garage. Judge Carn's findings, quote, JonBenet's body was bound with complicated rope slip knots and a garage attached to her body. The garage consisted of a wooden handle fashioned from the middle of a paintbrush found in the paint tray in the boiler room. The end of a nylon cord was tied to this wooden handle, and on the other end was a loop with a slip knot with JonBenet's neck within the loop. The end portion of the paintbrush used to construct the garage was never found. So there was a paintbrush in the home. Right. Who was who was, who was the painter? Uh, Patsy. So mom's paintbrush. She had a room in the basement where she painted. Right, I guess. Yeah. Probably freezing from all those broken windows. <laughs> <laughs> okay. There's debate on whether or not these knots are sophisticated or not. If they would have been hard to make. Judge Carnes on the sophistication, quote, the slipknots and the garrote are both sophisticated bondage devices dev- designed to give control to the user. Evidence from these devices suggests that they were made by someone with expertise using rope and cords, which cords could not be found or sourced within the defendant's home. Meaning they brought them themselves. Right. The cords, at least. The cords. And presumably took the remaining piece of the paintbrush with them when they left. But left the flashlight. But left the flashlight on the counter or on the kitchen table. Right. And the cords were used for what part? The the slipknot. Was that not rope? Well, they say it's a nylon. In her quote, she's saying cord. Okay, but they meant like the rope. Yeah. Because it. Okay, in the picture, it's a it's a clear like rope type. Um, just to clear up this next quote, uh, Mary Keenan was the district attorney. Special Prosecutor Mike Kane came back on uh, Judge Carnes' ruling on the sophistication. He said, "Quote." First of all, the thing I was going to say is if Mary Keenan was has reached this conclusion, she clearly has not reviewed her own file because I don't want to get into a lot of specifics about this because of ethical reasons. But there are clearly in the police file answers to a lot of things that the court said had never been established. I don't know where this came from, that these were sophisticated knots. I don't know that anybody had the opportunity to untie those knots who was an expert in knots, but the police department had somebody who fit that category, and that was not the opinion of that person. These were very simple knots. So again, just two different stories. Two different opinions. Constantly. Yeah. It's all this story is, is just opinions. On whether or not the Ramses could make the device, Judge Karn said, quote, no evidence exists that either defendant knew how to tie such knots. But many criticized this because John Ramsey had naval experience. Both he and Patsy were active sailors. They were on boats a lot. And Burke was in Boy Scouts. 
they would all have some form of knowledge in tying knots. So contrary to what the judge said, uh, literally everyone in the house <laughs> knew how to, tell, to tie knots, complicated right. knots. And if you <laughs> sail a fucking boat, you're yeah. going to know how to tie some fancy right. knots. Let's get into a little bit about where the cord came from. According, and again, when you say cord, the rope, the rope cord, the rope, because the pictures show more of a rope. Yeah. Okay. Just wanted to be clear. According to Judge Carnes' finding, quote, sources of the cord used in the crimes in the crime were never located nor sourced to the defendant's home. Authorities determined that this cord was sold at Boulder Army Store and McGuckin's. Head detective Steve Thomas's book claimed that a receipt from McGuckin's for the exact amount of this particular type of cord was traced to the Ramseys. That, that's huge. Well, yeah, that's, that's a, huge. Yeah, where's that piece of evidence? <laughs> right. That's a direct tie to the... Yeah. So, so that, where's the receipt? He claims it. Everyone wrote a goddamn the head, book. The here. head <laughs> detective <laughs> on this case says he has a receipt he, that puts this rope or cord... The exact price from this exact store where it's where you can purchase, and it clearly you couldn't find it at a lot of places. Yet that's the only part time we hear about it, and it couldn't been couldn't be found in their home. Strange. So I bet it was in the grand jury testimony. That's yeah. just why unless he's just making it up for his book. Yeah, I mean it's yeah it's either that it's either it was in the grand jury like you said, mm-hmm. or he just. It's one of those like Michael Scott type situations where just, I declare, <laughs> I <laughs> declare like, bankruptcy. You can just, just say whatever you want. <laughs> Another big thing with this case is the stun gun theory. She has the the abrasions that people said. Well, they're listed as abrasions in the autopsy. They program. look like bruises almost, right? Like two dark holes. Yeah, and so a lot of people say that those are uh, could be from a stun gun. It's another high. Look, looks like it. Yeah, I mean this, is, and this is another thing that's a huge debate. No stun gun was ever found, but the marks on John Benet's body, to some, were consistent with a stun gun. The stun gun thing seems to be more consistent with an intruder theory, because there's no evidence that the Ramses owned a stun gun. In but their- that, I guess also the rope, like we don't know if they really own the rope or not, because but there is some buddy saying there's a rope tied to them right no pun intended but <laughs> i didn't mean for that to be yeah. but so there is no report of a stun gun allegedly it's probably not that hard to hide a stun gun get rid of one dispose of one yeah but they haven't covered if if, if it was the Ramses, they haven't covered anything else up at all but see the Ramses wouldn't need a stun gun to get John Bonet out of bed to go to the basement, whereas an outside intruder would. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, they they most likely. I mean, they wouldn't. Doesn't mean they wouldn't use it. They wouldn't need it. I just it, it would be out of place. I I guess I don't think it would serve any purpose. It'd be out of place to murder your daughter, Dave. Uh, also <laughs> true. In the Ramsey's book, John Ramsey desc- describes going to a spy store due to his concerns about risks to access graphics related to electronic bugging. As we left, the clerk gave me a videotape catalog to take home. When I returned to Boulder, I threw it in the drawer and completely forgot about the tape. I surmised that as the police went through everything in our house, they found the video catalog, which apparently turned out to have an advertisement for, you got it, stun guns. Not too long after the police reported to the media that they, f- they had found a stun gun, quote, instructional video in the Ramsey house. 
So on the one hand, they were supporting the stun gun theory, but on the other hand, they were not indirectly saying that I had used this weapon on my daughter. Of course, for a period of time, the video created a significant uproar and cast further suspicion on me. Later, we got a copy of the video catalog from the store in Coral Gables and found it was recorded in Spanish. Not only had I never reviewed the tape, if I had, I wouldn't have understood it. Well, I've never heard of such a thing. <laughs> as far as the video catalog. Yeah. That's a stretch. Yeah, like that's that's a stretch, I think. What? Just finding the tape and then assuming a stun gun. Well, the police were putting out stuff to the public trying to... Of course they were, because they didn't know what the fuck they were implicate doing. Implicate them, right? Yeah. Like, hey, can you help us? Are you a volunteer? Well, the that's the thing, too, is OJ ended, what, two years before this? Yeah. All the tabloids, every ounce of news media in this country, everything realized what that could do for your ratings and your money. And so as soon as this happened, they were like, oh, here we go. OJ's done. Now we got a new one. And yeah. I mean, you know. That's what you remember as a kid in the checkout. Aisle. I told you guys when we started the series, yeah. I know nothing about Jean Benet other than being a kid at the grocery store and seeing her face plastered on magazines. Well, and I, I was st- 10 years old when this happened. I didn't follow yeah. it and I didn't look into it when I got older. I'm learning it now. And, and in one of those things I, I was watching, they had an interview with the Globe reporter that was on site that they dispatched to Boulder. And he said the Globe sold an extra, what, half a million copies a week? When they ran, you know, a headlines based on this, so they told them they wanted a new story about John Bonet every week, and a, it wasn't even a new one every a week. new one every week. So when there's nothing, you find what you can. That's right, and you run with it. Right, and that's the problem with this. And that's why that's what that's kind of what I was trying to get at earlier with the conspiracy stuff is when there's incompetence, it leaves holes to be filled, and then this is how they get filled. Yeah. Every week it was something different with that when you look back at, at these things. I mean, I was yeah. too young to read them, but yeah. going through stuff, it's like one week it's Patsy did it. Mm-hmm. Then it's John Ramsey did it. Then they started targeting it on Burke, and it's not it's nothing but tabloid bullshit. Well, and to compound that, whoever took all those photographs of her leaked all those or sold them all, so then there's a new yeah photograph of her every you know every week but then you're you're selling millions and millions of copies yeah. like they know yeah sure they, they know what they're doing i mean it you, just doesn't help an already flawed investigation yeah i mean you know damn well owners of those tabloids and in media things are like this is great for us yep just like Domino's with their fucking pizza with oj they were loving every second of that record sales i forgot about that what was the deal with Domino's? They had record sales during the OJ verdict. Oh, just because, because people, people didn't want to go out. <laughs> yeah. Oh, all right. Yeah. I, but I remember the story of where, didn't they go through McDonald's when they were running away? Oh, OJ, OJ and OJ Kato. had a Big Mac. Yeah, him and Cato. Yeah. Didn't that lead? Is Was that what led to the first debate for us between the Big Mac and the Quarter Pounder? <laughs> I believe Maybe. so. Oh, we're getting off subject. I know Still a delicious up. sandwich. <laughs> it is a delicious sandwich. You know who didn't have an involvement with this? Bat Boy. He did not. The Weekly World News might have been the only upstanding tabloid magazine that didn't get dive into this. They were the only one with a fucking spine during this whole thing. Yeah, they just talked about Bat Boy, <laughs> his his <laughs> plunders. I did. I when I was looking into this, I fully expected there to be like some Bat Boy did something to John Bonet, but nope. They had no. They have class and dignity and scruples. <laughs> <laughs> So back to the... Uh, All right, we're at the six-hour mark of this episode. 
back to the stun gun. In theory, authorities could have exhumed JonBenet's body and and solved this whole stun gun issue, but that never happened. Boulder DA Alex Hunter considered the stun gun theory, quote, iffy. And according to him, he talked to the police about exhuming JonBenet's body, but they were against it. Judge Carnes' findings regarding the stun gun, quote, Defendants John and Patsy Ramsey have presented photographs of John Binet taken Christmas morning that clearly reveal the absence of any marks on her neck. Yet the autopsy report clearly shows reddish burn type marks on John Binet's neck and back. Because it's logical to assume that John Binet would struggle against an attacker she did not already know, the use of a stun gun helps to explain why no evidence of a struggle was found in any of the bedrooms in the defendant's home. Moreover, defendants have presented the testimony of Dr. Michael Doberson, a forensic pathologist who examined the Boulder coroner's autopsy report and autopsy photos, and who concluded that the injuries to, quote, the right side of the face as well as on the lower left back are patterned injuries most consistent with the application of a stun gun. As in they got her in the face and in the back? That's what he's alluding to. Were there two sets of those? She had multiple mm. Or they just got her two different times. What's what I mean? Two sets of marks. That's what I mean. Yeah, like one stun gun, and they just yeah, right. got her back, and then maybe her body flopped over, and they put it in her mm. face or something. I don't know. Evidence of the stun gun theory is primarily put forward by Lou Smith, who was a retired police detective that was called by the DA to come out of retirement and work on the case. Smith resigned from the case 18 months after concluding that the Ramseys had nothing to do with the murder. The Damn. Cl- yeah, he, he said no. John Douglas also says no, too, from the FBI criminal profiling. Right, we discussed him last yeah. week. Yeah. The closest manufacturer. Do, do they? Are we going to get to hit them next week anymore or no? John Douglas? Or, or yeah. this? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll save those questions for next week. The closest manufacturer that could be linked to a possible stun gun was a company called AirTaser. They gave a lengthy interview on facts about stun guns and are skeptical that any stun gun could have been used without either creating much noise or causing John Bonet to scream in pain. Eh, I don't know about that. I guess you, you, you know, you sneak in, you put your hand over her mouth and give her a stun gun and knock her out, right? I mean, I've never been hit with a stung. I don't know. We should try that on you. They're the, we should. <laughs> I'm all for that. <laughs> They're the experts, though. Like, wouldn't they would give an honest opinion of this? I mean, unless they don't want to besmirch their name, but. Oh, you know what? In all fairness, or not in all fairness, but when uh, I don't think you guys were here yet. It was for before one of my one of the fights we watched over here. Yeah. I had started drinking super early, and we bought that dog collar for max that shocks him when he does something bad and so i'm like you know what I'm like i should be fair to max and i should feel what this feels like if yeah. i'm gonna do it to him yeah that's a you know that's only fair so i turned it up to 100 and put it up against my yeah. neck and hit the button that dude it, it fucking hurt man it felt like someone punched me in the side of my neck those things work and that's just yeah. a fucking shot collar it's not yeah. even a taser so i i never Stop put it on him again but i'm like damn yeah i'm not doing that to him you remember CKY when they had the electric fence and they were pissing on it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It, that really hurt. So I don't know what a stun gun would feel like. Not good. No. And Werner Spitz, who we talked about earlier, he did the West Memphis 3 stuff that we talked about. 
he said that these, in his opinion, these are not stun gun marks on her neck. That he would expect to see some type of an electrical burn, and he doesn't see that in the pictures. Okay. So, that's his opinion. Mm. Because there's a lot of argument on if the marks on JonBenet are bruises, or if they're burn marks, and whether or not a stun gun would cause a burn, or if it wouldn't cause a burn... The 2016 CBS documentary suggested that the stun gun marks instead were created by the train tracks from Burke's train set in the basement near the wine cellar room. What? What's the logic on that? It's just it's just another media source trying to come up with something to throw at the wall to get ratings and like, add their own twist on this. Except that Burke sued them, and I believe they had to settle a defamation suit with him. He sued the shit out of them for <laughs> like, that. $375 million or something crazy. <laughs> yeah. hmm. And they paid something, so. You can't just say things yeah, like that's that. Just, you that's can't, just like a random thing. If you if you watched that, because I think, wasn't didn't you say you were thinking about watching that? Which? The what? CBS one, didn't you say it popped up on it YouTube? It popped up at one point, but I wanted to wait till after we did this because I didn't want any spoilers. If you watched that, and that's all you knew about that case, you would come away from that and be like, Burke did it. 100% Burke did it because it doesn't talk about any of this other stuff. It doesn't talk about the fact that she had paintbrush shards inside of her. Mm-hmm. It doesn't talk about anything like that. So you'd be like, fuck yeah, Burke did it. And they covered it up. That's why uh, they ended up paying. <laughs> exactly. All right. Finally. The pineapple. Been alluding to it. So for- long story short, if you like pineapple on your pizza, fuck you. End of episode. <laughs> we'll see you next week. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the comments expressed by Mike do not necessarily reflect all staff or all show members. <laughs> Actually, they do. In this case, we all wholeheartedly agree. Cooldown Media does not represent that. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's talk about this pineapple. This is this is just odd. If, if anything, uh, there's just wrench after wrench thrown. This throws a major wrench. But I it. think I'm going to throw a wrench in this whole th- thing. Just you tell your story. All right. I'm going to throw a fucking <laughs> wrench in this whole story. All right. Let's hear it. I so, said it earlier and you guys told me to shut the fuck up. We'll talk about it on air. <laughs> For many years, the general public had heard that pineapple had been found in John Bonet's small intestine. However, according to Lynn Wood's motion in Burke Ramsey's 2016 defamation case against CBS, quote, a Boulder PD analysis after the autopsy determined that John Bonet's small intestine had remnants of cherries, grapes, and pineapple, common fruit cocktail ingredients. So he threw a whole wrench in the pineapple debate. Interesting. A bowl of pineapple was found in the breakfast area off from the kitchen. It contained only fresh pineapple and milk, along with a large spoon. No other elements of fruit cocktail were in this bowl. Therefore, the pineapple in this bowl may or may not be connected to the pineapple found in John Bonet's small intestine. And that bowl was found when? During in the crime scene photos. But like randomly discovered throughout the day, like that fucking flashlight was. Like at some point, someone was like, "Oh, there's a bowl of pineapple here." As far as I know, like the advocates could have brought it with them. But just, I mean, that's a very any of that. Like, there's people in and out all goddamn day. Mm-hmm. They could have moved a flashlight. Someone could have had some pineapple. Maybe it was an advocate taking their lunch break and just, you know, whatever. I'm, I'm just asking no, when, no, when was it yeah. found? As far as I know, it was found. It's just it's part there. of the crime scene. Yeah. What's with pineapple in a bowl of milk? 
It's very strange. That, that would seem like an ordinary breakfast for a young kid, I would think. You're, a bowl you're, of milk with pineapple. Well, in no, it? I no, I, thought, I assumed it was a glass of milk. Next no, to it was. It. A, it's a bowl. It has milk poured in it and pineapple in the bowl. Oh. So you're against pineapple on pizza, but not against it in a bowl oh, of that's milk. That's fucking weird. That's what I'm saying. You still thinking an, that sounds an like adult? A clean, that sounds like a cleanup to me. Like someone was trying to clean up a table. And maybe they, they poured like a cup of milk in the bowl to dump it in the garbage disposal or something. It had a spoon in it, like someone was eating cereal. Mm. Now what do you got? Well, because you would eat pineapple probably with a fork. But if it's in milk, if you're <laughs> eating it like cereal, you'd eat it with a spoon. But again, that, that, like, was she known to eat something so fucking weird like that? Like, Mm-mm. that's odd. And meanwhile, in her system was fruit cocktail. I don't see these two connected. Because if you're finding the cherries and what else was it? The uh, grapes. The grapes and the pineapple, which is a fruit cocktail. It seems odd that, I don't know. I, I don't necessarily think those are connected. We'll, we'll get into Go it ahead. in yeah. part three. Because it, it, it seems like something that a kid having, well, we all have kids, but it seems like something that a kid would just make on their own. Be like, oh, that, that sounds good. Pineapple and milk. We'll get into that in part three. With some theories, but God, right. damn, now you're teasing me because I don't know where the fuck you're going with that. Pineapple continues to next week. Right. She wakes up in the middle of the night and decides she wants some pineapple and milk, or okay. someone else, more likely. Santa Claus possibly made it for her. Mm. All right, we'll get into it in part three. God, I can't wait to tune in next week. <laughs> so, Judge Karn's findings: quote There's no evidence in the record that indicates when John Bonet ate the pineapple. Defendants state they did not feed JonBenet pineapple upon returning home from the White's party that evening. Mr. White does not recall if the pineapple was served at his dinner party on December 25, 1996. Based on the condition of the pineapple in her intestines, the experts estimated that JonBenet had eaten it an hour and a half or two hours before she died, most likely after the family returned home that night. Both John and Patsy Ramsey stated in their 1998 police interviews They know nothing about the pineapple in the bowl. Patsy does not recall even buying pineapple, and the available evidence suggests the pineapple was not brought by the victim's advocates group. There you go. So these motherfuckers can tell you that the pineapple was eaten an hour and a half to two hours before she died, Mm -hmm. yet their time of death is, what, 12 hours off at least? The like the experts that have looked at um that are talking about this are looking at looking at it in hindsight, talking about the state of the pineapple. They're looking at it in hindsight and saying, Yeah, that would be this time frame where she would have had to have eaten it. The the coroner who initially did this autopsy was just We know he was just trying yeah. to get the fuck out of there for a holiday break right. or something. Like we were just saying this is all viewed in hindsight is going on this, the, the time frame of the pineapple based on experts looking in hindsight at everything based on the rigor mortis that was observed. She died likely closer to midnight than 6am is the window they're given. Okay. I'm, I probably could have told you that. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, based on <laughs> like that makes sense. Okay. Then and that's the you thing saw with a this. kitchen light on allegedly at about midnight. That was well after everyone went to bed. That would have made sense when she ate some pineapple, probably. And that that and that the pineapple throws a wrench in in the whole narrative because if if you say she was hit with a stun gun in her bed and then brought downstairs, 
That doesn't make sense. At what point did she get the pineapple in her stomach? Which doesn't make but sense. But that's the stun gun theory is saying that she was subdued with a stun gun and carried downstairs. To the basement. Right. So you either believe the stun gun or you believe the pineapple. Unless the stun gun is used at some other point. But that makes even less sense because mm-hmm. why would she just be sitting there eating pineapple fine and then hit her with the stun gun? That doesn't make sense. Unless you do that to get her at the basement. Yeah, but she was comfortable enough with you to get downstairs and eat the pineapple. Unless she came, woke up herself, came down, made this pineapple milk thing, and then she was encountered while she was Which doing would be that. very convenient for yeah. someone who was trying to encounter you unless you were already in the home. Like a family that's what That's what John Douglas believes, is that somebody broke into this home, into their house and was waiting. That's what I'm leaning towards Waiting right for now. her to randomly wake up in the middle of what, the night. Just, no, just waiting for them to get home and go to sleep, and then they would make their, their move. And she just happened to come down. I mean, sometimes wrong place, wrong time happens. I mean, that's terrifying time. to think about yeah. for this poor little girl. Mm-hmm. What are you leaning towards right now? I don't know... We haven't, and I know we're jumping ahead now to next week, we haven't much touched on the, the the Santa Claus guy. Yeah. We only briefly touched on him in part one. There's probably more to that story that I want to hear about. I do not think it was a coincidence where someone was waiting and she just happened to wake up, come downstairs, and make herself a bowl of pineapple and milk. Seems strange. That's 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 odd. So did they already have pre-cut pineapple in their fridge? Pat says she doesn't even remember buying it. They don't even know where it would come from. So I don't I don't think that theory holds up. Maybe the theory of the Santa Claus guy came with some pineapple and milk because she told him that's what she wants when she was, you know, giving him a house tour over Christmas or whatever, bonding with him. But then where does the, the stun gun fit into that? Right. And if you go with Warner Spitz, he... Says it's not even a stun gun. The no stun gun was used in his opinion. I feel like there might be there's multiple people involved in this. That's a whole nother thing, then. And I'm not saying that's a cover-up. I'm not saying it isn't. I just feel like there's more than one person involved in this because there's so many different aspects. There's so many different things. Where I'm at with it is everything about the murder the murder, nothing points to the Ramses. In my opinion, I agree. It's such a brutal murder. There's no evidence of any past abuse. And that's what I was going to get to. But I didn't know if we wanted to wait till next week. Like I was going to ask what what reasoning is there to accuse like mom? Was she jealous of her daughter's fame? Did she ever show hostility towards her daughter? But there's a lot of strange behavior that takes place that we'll get into next week. Okay, so that's what I'm saying. Maybe I don't know about some of that. Yeah, well, just how they react to the police investigation and well, that's and things odd. like that. It's yeah, but, like it's if you're normal. telling me we're gonna blame Burke because he once hit his younger sister with a golf club, like get the fuck out of here. That's there's nothing to stand on with that. Kids, kids do that all the time, or it was an accident. There's that. That's not enough to make me convinced it was the brother. Yeah. If you're gonna tell me there's something else, we'll get to next week. Well, then maybe so. Yeah, we're gonna dive into all the the theories and stuff I just just based on this information nothing about the actual murder makes you think it makes me think the ramses did it i'm with you on the surface of it i think you're right but then there's there's then you think about the ransom note you think about the strain the really odd behavior during the 
time before her body was found. Now you're convincing me otherwise. Exactly. Yeah, then you start that's what get, happens. Yeah. yeah. And then you throw in the pineapple and you're like, wait a second, where the fuck did this even come that's from? That's why I think there's more than one person involved. Maybe someone else did it at the behest of the family. That would be a whole nother thing. Well, let's figure it out next week. <laughs> We're going to solve all the answers next week. That's quite enough for this week. Yeah. Next week we'll get into uh, get into the shoe prints because we didn't get a chance to touch on that. You we'll, mean from the 75 people that entered the home? <laughs> right. We'll Can't get, wait. We'll get into that. We'll get into that broken window a little more, and then we'll do all the suspects, all the mm. all the theories with that. It's it's really fascinating. It's terribly sad. Yeah. It's really interesting to look at and just try to figure out. But I mean, when you ask for a final like answer on it, that's tough. I don't know how you can confidently say, you know, or you, you believe who did this Yeah, based would, on what I know so far. And I really don't know anything other than what we've discussed mm-hmm. thus far. And I, I would say, I would recommend to anybody that has a really strong theory to, if you haven't maybe go out and, and look at all the, the crime scene and autopsy photos. Cause it might change your mind a little bit. I will not on be cert- looking at on those. certain theories. Yeah. Also, with discretion, because they're yeah, very, oh yeah, they're, uh, they're not, yeah, they're yeah. bad. But we're not going to post those. All right, Dave. What else you you got? Anything for this one? You got any closing thoughts? I don't. I suspect uh, next week makes it even more complicated, and we'll not sure we'll be able to even draw conclusions. That's, but we'll see. Yeah. I did say at the beginning this is going to leave us with more questions and answers, and I suspect yeah. we'll complete complete the whole series yeah. with more questions and answers. It's more of a it, to me. It's more of a mystery than the the outlaw story yeah because the atlov was uh the the (laughs) abominable snowman (laughs) they solved that one for us that was easy all right ian you got anything else you want to add to this one any last uh follow-ups wrap-ups nope i am good we got some shout outs for some patrons that joined over the last week we got a decent amount over the uh, past seven days uh thank you very much to joshua bovie kaylee cute fruit rachel simmerlink tyler topa jm Josh Cowperthwaite, Chris Vick, Jacob Lund, Allison Nicole, Jess Brown, Sam Goldstein, Suzanne Roney, Ariel, John Barfield, Brock Swenson, and Nicholas Martin. Thank you guys very much. We hope you enjoy the uh, bonus content and uh, sign up for the Discord if you haven't already. It's a lot of fun in there. Ian, what shout outs we got? For iTunes, I have my Yelp nickname, Paula Babe, Lacey Shepard. Lindsay Patterson, Bear three two six, somewhere on the beach, and Shorn ninety two. Thank you guys for the uh, for the awesome reviews. A lot of a lot of good ones recently. Yeah, a lot of great ones this past week. Yeah, I really appreciate it. It was it was a good week for us. I love reading all around. Those. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I, I know you've said it before. We every time we get a new one, we always text them to each other. Yeah, because we have a three-way thread going that we talk in every day. Even the bad ones we like, we celebrate those as well. They're they're great. (laughs) Dave, what do you got on the socials? From Instagram, Paige JJJJ, Tiffany Macon, and Amy Riggs, aka Squirt Russell. (laughs) And from Twitter, Rawaned17. Thanks, guys. All right. We are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Necronomapod. If you want any of our sweet-ass merch, we are at Amazon.com and search Necronomapod. And if you would like to become a patron, we got three bonus episodes a month, plus the private Discord chat room, which is 
blown up recently and become a, mm-hmm. a ton of fun. Um, you can uh, become a patron at patreon.com slash Necronomapod. The $5 tier gets you access to all the bonus content. And if you just want to help out the show and get a shout out on the show, you can sign up for the $1 tier. So that's how you reach out to us. Yeah, and we're on uh, iHeartRadio now. We are also on iHeartRadio now, so you can check us out on there. Excellent. Boom. So if anybody likes that one better, that platform. There we are. Yep, head on over. All right, you guys ready for a cool down beer? Cheers. Cheers.